Ciao. Ciao. Jalo Chow Chow Podcast has returned. What have I done to you? What do you want from me? We want you to listen. We want you to subscribe. And we want you to join our Facebook group. Do you know how to do those things? I don't know. I don't know anything. Well then, it seems we have no choice. <laughs> Ciao, everyone, and welcome to Jalo Chow Chow, the all Jalo show, where we always love our neighbors as ourselves. <laughs> My name is Chris, and I run a little website called thejaloscore.com. Joining me today, as always, is my good friend Al. Ciao, sir. How are you doing today? Ciao, ciao. I'm pretty good. How are you? I'm doing great. Cool. And uh, before we get into anything else, um, as I was watching our deep dive film for the third time, I started paying attention to the Italian language a little bit more. Because um, quite honestly, they talk so fast in that movie that it's almost impossible sometimes for me to read and also watch what's happening. So, um, But from time to time, the main character is referred to by other people as commendatore. And I also remember that there was a Sopranos episode about Commendatore, I think in the first season, when they went to Italy to visit mm -hmm. like the, the bosses in Italy. And Polly Walnuts was really impressed with being called Commendatore. Yeah. Um, and I wanted to ask, I mean, I understand that from a formal standpoint that this is used to mean commander, if you're, you know, if you're addressing someone who's ranking higher than you, I guess, military-wise. But when people use it in an informal conversation, how is it used and how is it used properly? Uh, you know, I really don't hear that very much. Of course, nobody says it to me. So. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's why you don't hear it, right? Yeah. Maybe I'm, uh, I'm being disrespected everywhere I go. But... Um, Honestly, the only time I see it is in films and TV shows like The Sopranos. And I always had the impression that it was kind of an ass-kissy way to address somebody. 
Okay. Because in most of the cases in the film that we're covering today, it's the main character, Brignoli, is being addressed that way by his like underlings. Yeah. Or like people who, like there's a scene where he, uh, there's a scene in the movie where he goes to get gas and I think one of the guys asks him, you know, something about my brother applied for a job, you know, is that, is, is he going to get one or something like that? And they might've called him commendatory at that point. Yeah. And that would be a perfect, uh, a perfect situation where you would want to be a little ass cause he. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And uh, he, pr- he probably meant it seriously, right? but I think over time and especially after watching that episode of Sopranos, I kind of, kind of see it as more ironic or tongue in cheek. Right. Uh, well, cause in the Sopranos episode, it's kind of like the bellhop or the guy at the hotel who calls Polly commendatory. And then Polly says it to somebody else and they give him this look like, what are you nuts? Like, why are you calling me that? So. Yeah. I think that was because he didn't know them at all. And right. <laughs> so I don't know. There are people that panhandle every now and then outside of the uh, grocery stores here. Yeah. And it's funny because they always ask you for one euro for a sandwich. And I want to ask them, where the hell are you buying these sandwiches for a euro? You know, because I could yeah. stop going to the grocery store if I can get a year sandwich for a fucking euro. <laughs> but as soon as you walk up, they hold their hand out and they say, ciao, fratello, which is brother. And okay. you're not my fucking brother. And Right. But, you know, that's. I don't know. Maybe they'd get more out of me if they called me commendatory. Maybe I'd be flat. <laughs> sort of empty my pockets. <laughs> you would prefer to be treated as an, a superior and not like a hippie brother kind of brother brother on earth kind of brother. Yeah, I mean, I I guess in theory I'm better with a fratello than commendatore, but. <laughs> <laughs> my my point is it's it's somebody who wants something from you that would say that. Yeah, know? I mean I would just kind of um I would assume cuz I don't know any better that you know that word might be used you know in a fancy restaurant or when you go somewhere and uh somebody's going to pump your gas for you or shine your shoes for you or something but you're saying that you don't really hear it too often, so. I've, I can't remember any time that I've heard somebody say that in real life. Yeah. Um, it's probably fallen out of uh, fashion, maybe. Maybe. I don't know. I'll ask my Italian friends next time I hang out with them. watched a film that I've seen a million times before, but just recently got a upgraded copy with good sound. It's a film called Nightmares in a Damaged Brain, directed by Romano Scavolini. Scavolini, uh, Italian director. It, it takes place in New York City. Um, I think it, it reminds me a lot of New York Ripper. It starts out with a psych 
you know, psychotic, criminally insane individual who's in a straitjacket in an asylum, but they are doing an experimental drug therapy to try to get him um, back into normal society. And after the drugs seem to be working, they let him go. But um, he's really not cured. And so he just goes on a murder spree and eventually makes his way down to Florida where he um, goes back to where his family lives, like his ex-wife and his kids, uh, in an attempt to, I guess, murder them. Um, The film kind of reminds me of New York Ripper. And I don't know if you ever saw the original version of Manhunter, which was, I think, I think Michael Mann directed it. It was, did you see that? I saw that a long time ago after silence of the lambs came out. Right. And it reminds me of that a little bit. It's, it's a very bleak, um, nihilistic kind of view of the world. It's not fancy at all, but I think that the direction is done really well. And, you know, the rumor was that, even though Tom Savini is given credit for the gore effects that he has distanced himself from the film, um, probably cause it's got such a notorious, you know, following and, and reputation. Hmm. Um, but the, the gore effects are, are pretty well done in the film. But anyway, the reason I bring that up is because, um, I'm looking at this guy and I'm going Romano Scavolini I looked him, I, you know, I said, this guy with an Italian name directed a slasher film in 1981. He's got to have something prior to this that would be more appropriate for the podcast. And I looked it up and he directed a film called uh, A White Dress for Mariale, 1972. Mm -hmm. Um, Also known as Spirits of Death and also known as tragic exorcism and it stars uh luigi pastilli and ivan razumov uh-huh. um and then and and also ida gali i think her name yeah. is she was in um case of the scorpion's tail <clears throat> and a few other things i think she was in um knife of ice too and uh Obviously, we know Ivan Razumov. He was in um, many of the films, the blue-eyed kind of villain guy. And Luigi Pastilli, he's the, I think he's the lead in Your Your Vice is a Locked Room. Yeah, he is. He's always wearing, he's always wearing turtlenecks for some reason. Mm-hmm. I always think of him with a turtleneck on. Anyway, I haven't seen this, and I've kind of put a pin in it to return to it, because it's... Um, in Wikipedia, they say, although the film is often described as a giallo, film historian so-and-so stated it only becomes a violent murder mystery about an hour into the film. That Yeah, so so like it, it's, it doesn't necessarily show up in everybody's list of giallo films, but um, this film, Nightmare or Nightmares in a Damaged Brain, or sometimes it's called Nightmare, um, when I was watching it this time, because I had seen it so many times, I was watching it for things I hadn't noticed before. And I just, I was really impressed with, you know, just the direction, the cinematography, this, you know, the, 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 the way that this, the, the shots were designed and set up. Um, Cause it is a really, 
from a content standpoint, it's really a, a, a bleak film. It's not, it's not, uh, it's not inspiring. It's not um, entertaining in a way like a traditional slasher would be because it's like kind of tongue in cheek. It's there's no tongue in cheek with this. It's just uh, I don't know if you ever saw like Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer. Yeah, that's what I was thinking about as you were describing that. I'm looking at the poster now, and it says contains sexual situations and scenes of explicit horror not suitable for children. As opposed to the sexual situations and explicit horror that are suitable for children. That are, yeah. <laughs> but the cover, it's this dude slicing some chick's throat or about to. I think he may have done some pornography, too. So, Speaking of he might have done some pornography, I also watched a film <laughs> from our good buddy Joe D'Amato um, called Anthropophagus. Anthropophagus. Yeah, Anthropophagus. And this one, I didn't remember. I had seen it ages ago as a kid. And uh, I watched it very recently. And I think I understand why it has a cult following. Mm -hmm. um, it It's really boring in parts because it's the plot. There's nothing to it. I mean, a bunch of people go to an island and there's nobody on the island and they start to investigate to try and figure out where everybody went. And then there's a killer who's kind of like this. It's hard to describe what he is. He's he's like half human, half creature. Um, he's a cannibal. Um, but the scenes that are like the payoff scenes in this film are like really good payoff scenes. It's worth putting up with the boring parts. Okay. Um, and uh, Joe D'Amato, I think he did the uh, cinematography and wrote the story. Uh, so, you know, visually it's really well done. Um, and just like the shocking parts of the film are just really over the top and worth watching. Uh, and I won't spoil it for anybody who hasn't seen it yet, but Anthropophagus. Um, and you can find that on Tubi. You can also find um, a white dress for Mariale on Tubi. So head over to Tubi for all your Italian exploitation needs. Sounds good. So everybody, here we are. Without further ado, the film we're going to cover today, as voted on by our esteemed Jalo Chow Chow Facebook group members, is a film from 1969 called Psych Out for Murder. Al is going to indulge us with all of the information that he has uh, accumulated about the film. But I did want to say that I did find two copies of the film online. 
There's one on YouTube and there's also another one on a website that's a little bit more sketch than YouTube. But if you, it's one of these things where you click the play button and it doesn't start, but instead it gives you a new tab with something that they are trying to sell you and you close it out and you hit the play button again. And that happens, I think maybe one or two more times. And then after that's over, it plays without a problem. So I'm going to put a link to both of those in the show notes. Uh, please be careful with the second link. Um, click at your own risk. I didn't have a problem with it, um, but your mileage may vary. So um, if you haven't seen the film yet, take a moment if you want to, to go watch it and then uh, come back and listen to us. And uh, yeah, so without further ado, uh, Psych Out for Murder, 1969. Al, uh, do us the honors of giving us some info about this film. Okay. This is an Italian production. As far as I could tell, it was not a co-production between... Italy and France or Germany, like some of our more recent episodes. The director is Rosano Brazzi, who is also one of the main characters in the film. He plays the father named Marco. Uh, his brother, Oscar, is the producer. And Rosano Brazzi has three directing credits. This was the last of his directed films, and he sometimes worked under the pseudonym Edward Ross. The first film he directed was The Christmas That Almost Wasn't, which if you're in our age range, you might remember from the 70s and early 80s as being a December staple on HBO. Uh, some people probably saw that then. And another film was called uh, The Criminal Affair. He's usually an actor. He has a lot more acting credits, which I'll get to eventually. Uh, his brother, Oscar Brazzi, who was a producer of this, has 14 production credits and 10 directing credits. And I found on an Italian film site, forum type thing, People speculated that this film might have been better if Oscar had directed it instead of just produced it and let Rosano direct it. Hmm. The first three films that Oscar produced were, well, no, that Oscar directed were Secret Diary of an Underage Girl, followed by Secret Life of an 18-Year-Old, followed by Prohibited Intimacies of a Young Bride. And because of the, the sequencing and the titles and the fact that they came out one after another, I wonder if that was a trilogy. And I wonder if that has something to do with people saying that this film might have been better if he had directed this one. I hadn't seen hmm. those other ones yet. Uh, the original Italian title is Salvare la Faccia, which means like to save face, which I don't think it really... I don't know. I don't get it as far as the. Yeah, I I was really confused by that title. Mm -hmm. um, I think I mean the expression to save face means kind of like to to avoid um, bad feelings or bad publicity or bad press. And I mean, okay, in the beginning of the film. 
they're sending uh, Lichia off to the asylum in order to, to save face. Um, save face in light of the scandal. Okay, yeah, that does make sense. Yeah. I was thinking about it more from her point of view. I'm like, she's not doing what she does because psych out for murder. That is something that she is doing. And yeah. to save face would be something that her father, Marco, is doing. Okay, that makes sense. Uh, let's see. The cinematography is by Luciano Tresati. He has 76 cinematography credits, including some cool stuff like Bloody Pit of Horror, 1970s Count Dracula with Christopher Lee and Klaus Kinski, a film called The Red-Headed Corpse, starring Farley Granger, who we know from So Sweet, So Dead, and Amok. And yep. he does a film called Death Falls Lightly, which I had not heard of, but it came out in the 70s, so maybe we can put that on the list once we're done with the proto-Jalo and get back to the posto-Jalo. That might be something we could look into. <laughs> Uh, the music for this film is by Benedetto Ghiglia. He has 47 music credits, including a lot of films, TVs, and short films, but no titles that really stuck out to me. The editing. Usually I don't put editing in my production notes, but I think editing is quite an important part of this particular film, so I thought I'd oh, look yeah. at who did it. And it Definitely. is Amadeo Giomini. He has 55 editing credits, and they include such films as Naked Violence, which is on our list of upcoming episodes, right? Uh, Cold-Blooded Beast or Slaughter Hotel, yep. uh, Jalo called Cross Current, which I don't think Chow Chow has covered, but that could... Yeah, never seen that one. Yeah, that one is actually pretty good. And he also did uh, Bloodstained Shadow. So you might not know it. Okay. But That's a pretty big list. Yeah. So we're probably already familiar with his editing. But I don't think his editing in those other films is as in your face as it is during this. And we'll talk about that as we go. Uh, this was filmed in Rome and a city called Prato in Tuscany. The writers are... The director, Rosano Brazzi, he has five writing credits, and uh, those five credits include the three films that he directed and two of Oscar's sleazy uh, secret whatever of some kind of female trilogy. One of the writers was Diana Crispo. She has eight writing credits, uh, only a few films, a lot of TV. Another writer was Renato Polselli. He has 28 credits, including the 1972 Delirium, not to be confused with the one right. that came later, uh, and a Jalloish film called Erotic Games of a Respectable Family that came out in 75. Uh, the last writer credit goes to Piero Regnoli. He has a hundred and 17 writing credits, including Nightmare City, which we discussed recently. The, uh, right. the I think the Lindsay, uh, yep. yeah, Lindsay zombie film, thing. Yeah. And 
a pretty highly regarded Poliziotesco called Cry of a Prostitute, starring Barbara Boucher. And if you ever wondered what Barbara Boucher would look like with a black eye and a busted lip, I would direct you towards <laughs> that. She's still hot. Spoiler. Definitely. <laughs> Spoiler alert. Yeah, she still looks good. Yeah. Okay, the cast. As I said, Rosano Brazzi, the one of the writers and the director of this film, he plays the father of the family that we will be uh, watching. He has 153 acting credits. His earlier career was pretty respectable in even Hollywood. He was in Barefoot Contessa with Humphrey Bogart and Ava Gardner. He was in the film version of the Rodgers and Hammerstein South Pacific with Mitzi Gaynor and Ray Wallstone. And if you don't remember who Ray Wallstone is, he was Mr. Hand in Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Oh, and okay. he was also okay. in My Favorite Martian and a few other things. Uh, he also starred in The Italian Job with Michael Caine and Benny Hill. And I knew about The Italian Job, but I never knew that Michael Caine and Benny Hill were in the same movie. So I might have to check that out. Yeah. He's in a film called Sex of the Devil and Frankenstein's Castle of Freaks. So uh, that's a long way from starring with Humphrey Bogart and even <laughs> Mr. Hand. His career seemed to... Uh, Shift over to American TV in the 70s and 80s. He was in episodes of Hawaii Five-O, Police Woman, Charlie's Angels, Fantasy Island, and yes, even Love Boat. His last acting credit was in a 1996 Jalo called Fatal Frames. I haven't seen that, but I, from what I've read, it's not that great. Anyway, yeah. in this film, he plays the patriarch of the family named Marco. Uh, arguably, the main character of this film is his daughter, Licha, who is played by Adrienne LaRusso. She has 23 acting credits, including a film starring David Bowie called The Man Who Fell to Earth. I haven't seen that. But then she did a lot of TV, including 265 episodes of Days of Our Lives, between 1975 and 1977. And considering how much time I spent, you know, playing on the floor in the living room as a kid while my mom watched TV, I probably saw her quite a bit. Yeah. Yeah, she looks familiar, definitely. Okay. Uh, her boyfriend slash co-conspirator slash uh, asshole tormentor is played by... <laughs> <laughs> Nino Castelnuovo. His character's name in this is Mario. We have definitely seen him before because he was in uh, 91 different films, including, well, let's say he was in a Jalo called The Bloodstained Lawn, which uh, has just gone on my watch list. He was in the Oscar-winning film The English Patient. So that might by some be considered the highlight of his career. But I think in these circles, the highlight of his career was when he was in Strip Nude for Your Killer. He plays... Uh, yes. Yeah, he plays a guy that takes Femi Benussi in the sauna and then explains to Edwige Fenech how to make coffee. 
to make the molecules bigger. And let's see. Another character is Laura. She is the lover of the patriarch Marco. There's not a lot of information about her. She has 10 acting credits, and it looks like they were all in Italy or Spain. Her sister, well, Leach's sister, Giovanna, is played by Paola Pitagora. She has 68 acting credits, including an uncredited role in the Richard Burton, Elizabeth Taylor film, Cleopatra. Uh, so here she is, Giovanna, the sister. She is married to a uh, slimy, scuzzbag-type horn dog dude named Francesco, who is played by Alberto de Mendoza. He has 126 acting credits, including one on top of the other, which was covered by Chow Chow. Well, hell, most of these. Strange Vice of Mrs. Ward, Lizard in a Woman's Skin, Scorp Case of the Scorpion's Tail, and... He was in a British film called Horror Express, which a lot of people think is a Hammer film because it has Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing, but it's not. And he plays one of the main characters in one of my favorite Spanish horror films called The People Who Own the Dark from 1976. So I would recommend that. As an honorable mention, character in the film that never says one word but when I looked at this guy's credits, I thought it was, he'd be worth mentioning. And he plays the part of the butler. You don't see him a whole lot. <laughs> he never says anything. He makes a couple cool faces. He knows when to walk away from family drama. <laughs> but he is played by an actor named Nerio Bernardi. The cool thing about him is he was born in 1899. So he might be the, the oldest actor ever covered on this. He has 214 acting credits, starting in 1918 and ending wow. just two years after this one in 1971. And the, the fact that he was in Italian cinema in 1918, when Italian cinema was never, hadn't really started until 1905. But it looks like as soon as World War I died down, he started making movies. And looking at his credits, he was steady working between 1918 and 1971. I think the one year that didn't have a credit was 1944. So I don't know. There might have been something going on in Europe during 1944 that kept him from work. But... Uh, I thought it'd be cool just to tip a hat at somebody who had such a long career. Yeah, definitely. And, and he's he's in my favorite scene in the whole film, so. Oh, yeah? Okay, point that out when we get it's to at, it. It's at the end. <laughs> okay. Okay, cool. And that is it. for. I tried to find right. uh, the house that they had filmed this at. But I couldn't oh, find yeah. any information about that. So it's really cool looking. And I don't know. One of the things that I noticed when I watched the film is that um, when they have exterior shots and the car is driving up to the house, mm -hmm. um, all the exteriors seem to look the same. And I don't know half the time which house they're going to. And it took me a couple of times to figure out 
you know, at one point they go to Brignoli's chalet. Right. Um, when they try to, uh, what's the guy's name? Pater, Paternili? Or, Paterlini. I forget what his name is. Paterlini. Yeah. Is that a first name? I think that would be is a last, his last name. name. His last name. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, there were the shot when she's in the asylum or they're walking her to her room and there's that long curved kind of corridor with yeah. the brick glass. I wondered if that was the same location as the house because the house, the long hallways and the long stairwell didn't really look like a house. Right. But then again, he's supposed to be some jillionaire industrialist. And, you know, I haven't been to too many millionaires' houses. I don't know. But right. I wondered right. if that was all the same location. They just used different parts of the building for different sets. Yeah. Yeah, it could be. Well, I mean, and as we'll get into, the film is got a lot of what I would call montage um sequences Mm -hmm. and lots of quick cuts and quick editing. And a lot of the times it's hard to understand whether or not you're looking at something that happened already or is about to happen or is just something that someone's thinking about. Right. And, you know, um, a lot of times during those montages, they will show, a long hallway, whether it's a, a straight long hallway or a curved one, like at the asylum. Mm-hmm. Um, so that comes up a lot, like these long hallways. And I, I don't know how much um, subtext they intended by using these shots or if it was just like, hey, this looks cool. Let's use it, you know, over and over again. Yeah. But I don't know. So let's get started real quick before we even begin. I've noticed that every copy of this that I've seen is in a four to three aspect ratio and it doesn't appear to be cropped at all. I didn't notice that there was anything missing or that it looked like was missing from the the frame when I watched it. So um, it may be because I know there's there used to be a aspect ratio in Europe, which was one. 0.66 0.66 to one, which is a lot more like a square than American um, widescreen films. Mm-hmm. But um, even in that case, I don't, I don't know. I, 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 it looks fine to me was basically what I'm trying to say. And the version that's on YouTube, which is what I'm going to be referencing um, is a low quality. I think that this has only been released in DVD if at all, if, you know, if, if that's probably the best you'll find. Anyway, the film opens um, with lots of uh, close-up shots of body parts, uh, female and male. And there's a song playing in the background um, that goes, love your neighbor as yourself. <laughs> and then kill them. Uh, so... It's all like immediately you're like, and I don't know if this is just a modern audience reaction or if everybody had this reaction, but I'm listening to this and I'm like, what are they singing about? Like it's, it's hard to categorize. Is, is this a 
supposed to be like humorous to a certain extent. Like, I don't know it. it I mean, I know that the th- I know I understand what they're pointing at as far as the theme, like love your neighbor as yourself, kill them. But the way that the music is written, it's all very upbeat and dancey. So yeah, tone wise, it didn't fit. I don't think. And, and lyrically, it didn't yeah. make a whole lot of sense. Lyrically, I would have thought this song would be better suited for something like Bay of Blood, where people yeah. are killing their neighbors. And I don't know. I think maybe they just landed on rights to some song in English and thought it might help the uh, yeah. the profile of the film. Well, I actually downloaded the soundtrack because there's a copy of the soundtrack that was released on CD. I don't know how long ago. Huh. And the it's all little clips by the composer. I forget what his name is. You had mentioned him earlier. And, um, the, you know, this film is in there uh, over and over again. I'm sorry. This song is on there in various versions. And... Um, you know, I'm 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 remembering like a couple of the Lindsay films that we covered a while ago that had you know like a theme song. Uh, like there was this one song in Lindsay's uh, Orgasmo film um, that they listened to over and over and over again, and it sounded like um, American '60s soul music. Uh-huh. It was somebody that really kind of remained unknown in music history. And then there was another one uh, that Lindsay did where Carol Baker is walking around in the opening credits and there's this woman singing. Um, Anyway, it reminded me of that idea that they may have, um, you know, paid a certain amount of money to have a theme song written for the film. Almost like you're watching the Love Boat, you know, and there's a Love Boat theme song. Um, and maybe, you know, that's... And it was like some sort of promotional machine for that artist to be in a movie at the same time. So, you know, it doesn't say anything really specific in the opening credits about this song and who sang it. It just kind of rolls through the credits. But that's what it made me think of. It made me think of, you know... This artist, and especially since it's in English and the, the film is in Italian, um, I've noticed that at least the the Licia character or the, the 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 actress that plays Licia, I forget her name. Uh, it looks like she's speaking English in all of her parts, um, but I don't know if they ever did an English dub for this because I'd like to hear what her voice sounded like. Yeah, the fact that there's no English dub. Makes me, like you said, makes me wonder why there's an English song opening the film. Right. Because if you're going for an international audience, there should be an an English dub. Since they dubbed everything anyway. Uh, Yeah. And the fact that she did, you know, 265 episodes of Days of Our Lives. I doubt she had an Italian accent when she was doing it. Yeah. Right. So, yeah, well, I mean, I, I was following, um, like depending on the scene when I'm watching it, cause I don't understand Italian fluently. I 
kind of quickly glance at the 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 five or six words of the subtitles that have popped up and if i can read them fast enough and then look at the actor's mouth mm-hmm. to see if it matches in english what it says in the words and that's typically what i've a few times when i watched this i noticed that uh, her mouth movements were matching up with the subtitles in English. So, you know, um, cause a lot of times the subtitles don't match even what they say in English. Right. So, yeah. um, anyway, uh, not to, to linger on this for too long, but, um, after this little montage is over, we cut over to this ribbon cutting ceremony. And this reminded me of like a Monty Python skit or something because <laughs> It's like everybody is clapping really extra fast. And it almost looks like at some point the the film is sped up a little bit. But um, it's this dedication ceremony. And we see that Brignoli is there, uh, Marco and Laura, um, and also Giovanna and Francesco are both there uh, at this dedication. And we don't see Licia. We haven't seen Licia's face yet because the opening credits were only showing um, close-ups, but we don't see Licia, and she's not there. Her she's ears and her nostrils and her belly button. Yeah, right. I think on the opening yeah. credits, they must have gone through half a box of Q-tips to get everything to. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's funny. But yeah, she's um, not at the at the ceremony. Which she's not at the ceremony, so. And there's this one scene where, um, I guess it's, what's this guy's name again? It starts with a P. Paterlini. Uh, Paterlini. There's a a part in that opening scene where Paterlini is looking down at the audience. And there's this one guy who's not clapping very quickly. And he gives him like the stink eye. And all of a sudden he starts clapping faster. And then... Petrolini kind of like starts to nod his head and smile. Yeah, I was expecting um, that guy to show up later for some reason, but yeah, he never does. <laughs> they just wanted to show like somebody who was, I guess, uh, disappointed or, or not in favor of the ceremony, but kind of like was forced to go, you know. Um, but again, it just seems like that whole section, uh, this film was sped up just a little bit to kind of, and I don't know if it was for effect or what. It just seemed like, you know, they were, it was purposely rushing through it. But um, at any rate, pretty um, uneventful scene. But then we get back to Licia and Mario. She's got her, uh, her leg uh, in the frame, which is great. Her legs are in the frame pretty much <laughs> through the whole damn film, which I'm not complaining about. Um, yeah, that opening shot with her leg up like that reminded me of the poster for The Graduate. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yes. You're trying to seduce me, I was just going to say you? that, too. Yeah. And that came out, did that come out before? I think that was 68 or 67. So. 67, yeah. Yeah, so they definitely took a cue from that, for sure. Um, So they they continued to just have this great time and... Um, he says that, uh, he's poor, uh, because she refers to him as a knight in shining armor or Prince Charming or something like Mm -hmm. that. And then he says, yeah, but I'm not rich. Um, or that I'm poor. And she says, I don't care about that. Um, 
Now, I got to make mention, and this is going to come up multiple times throughout this little commentary, but uh, when I watched this film, I kept saying, oh, I wish Matt was going to be on the podcast. Oh, I wish Matt was going to be on the podcast. Because the fashion in this movie is just over the top. And it starts with Mario putting on this leather jacket. Yeah. And I, I, as soon as he put the jacket on, I paused it. I'm like, Matt would want to have that jacket. Even if he could get like the small one that didn't fit him, he'd still get it anyway. Um, I know, yeah, he, he just would have gone crazy over some of the stuff in this movie. But, uh, um, anyway, I don't exactly know this place where they're at. It gets raided by the police. And I'm trying to understand why. Is it like it's a hotel? Is it being raided because they think that prostitution is going on? Well, or? I got a clue about that from later when somebody's holding up a newspaper. Uh, not the headline, but the little, I don't know, secondary headline. And I don't want to spoil right. the next five minutes, but. <laughs> it mentions a compliant hotel, which I did yes. a little digging, and it turns out that it's kind of like a flop house hotel where you can rent rooms by the hour, and they kind of turn a blind eye to prostitutes turning tricks. So okay. it's not exactly a whorehouse, but it may as well be. And I think the idea was that places like that would often get raided periodically. Is the word, how is the word compliant, like used in this case? Uh, like, like they're, like they're, they are being compliant with the police. Well, I don't or, know. Cause I didn't, you know, I couldn't really zoom in and read the entire article. I just kind of, I made a point to translate the, uh, the yeah. headlines cause it was in Italian. Uh, yeah, I, no, I did this. I did the same thing. I, I mean, I used Google right. to try and. Translate it for me. Yeah, it says police raid on a compliant hotel. So, I don't know. Maybe that is something I hadn't thought of. Maybe it was a hotel that got tired of hookers bringing their johns up. And they called the cops. Yeah. I, yeah. I just don't really know what the word compliant is pertaining to in this. Yeah, who are they complying with? The the bad right. guys or the good guys? So, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> Well, at any rate, the hotel gets raided by the police and Mark and Mario says, uh, come with me. There's a back door. They go up this little spiral staircase, which I gave a point to in the Jello score. Mm -hmm. And then um, Mario goes and shoves Lichia through this back door only to be stopped by a photographer who's waiting there uh, to take her picture. And at the very last second, the, the the camera zooms in on Mario's face and he kind of gives a wink. Um, and I took that to mean that he set this whole thing up. Yeah. Um, yeah and he walked her right into the photographer. And then right, and, and exactly. later when we see the picture in the newspaper, you don't see him. You only see her. He's not in he's it. It's like right. he's cropped out of it conveniently. Mm -hmm. But what happens next is really strange. It's the first of many montages um, as soon as her picture gets taken, we cut to Brignoli at his office 
being kind of accosted by a photographer in his car. And then the very next scene, we see Brignoli approaching the politician, which is only on screen for a second or two. The next scene is Brignoli and the politician arriving at what I think is the police station in a red car. But then we cut back to Brignoli fighting with the photographer. Then we cut to Brignoli arriving at his house to talk uh, about what happened. Then we see a different car driving up into a driveway. It's just like, it's so confusing. The, the Until we get to the point where Brignoli is walking down this ha- long hallway, again, long hallways, I'm seeing more and more as we're doing this. And then we cut to the scene that starts with uh, Brignoli, the politician, and Laura talking about this newspaper article. So I tried to put this together. um, And I know that the theme of the film is like a psych out, you know, kind of um, leave you kind of um, confused and disoriented a little bit. Yeah, and it doesn't help that there's obviously a 24-hour time jump right between them getting their picture taken and him being chased. And it confused me, too, because we're seeing all these shots of people getting in cars and driving off and pulling up somewhere and running in. And then it's it's psyching me out, just trying to follow the damn montage. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But the next thing we know, he's got this newspaper with a picture, so... That has to be yeah. the next day. And so what I think happened is, or I think the story that they were trying to tell is the, the, the newspaper comes out the next day and then somebody goes to Brignoli to either get a statement or get some photos from him as a comment to what came out. And then Brignoli is fighting with him, gets in his car, drives to the politician's uh, or, or drives to meet up with the politician, interrupts him on his way into the office and says, come with me, we're going to the police office. They drive to the police office and then they get out, they shake hands and then they get in separate cars and drive to Brignoli's place or wherever they are now in this scene where they're sitting around the desk. But I mean, that's like, you know, I'm playing choose your own adventure with this with this film. <laughs> like I'm just I'm just making big assumptions about what they were what kind of story they were trying to tell us with this edits. Yeah. Um, and I, I can't really blame the editor for that. I would blame the director, which is Brignoli himself. You know, Rosano Brazzi. Sure. Um, and there's some huge plot holes in the, these first 10 minutes that considering he was one of the writers too, kind of makes me wonder if this whole thing was kind of a vanity project for him. Yeah. It kind of has that sheen right. to it where it's not quite very well directed and it's not quite very well written. And, oh, look, the star had hands in both of those. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So we're sitting here. I mean, they're sitting here in this office. He's, you know, waving the newspaper around and he's sitting with, uh, Laura, who we find out later is his, uh, lover. But she's also the wife of the fat politician guy. Right. And he says, I can hush up the newspaper. How are you? The picture's out. Yeah. Where do you, (laughs) you know, 
And I don't know what kind of attention span people had before it was ruined by MTV and TikTok, but <laughs> the cat's out of the bag. And he's like, I can hush up the newspaper. He says, holding the newspaper with a picture of his uh, well-endowed daughter coming out of a you know bad reputation hotel. Right. It's, hush them up out. What, just make them change the subject or just forget they ever printed that? And... Your reputation's already yeah. shot. Yeah, it's a good point. It's like, um, is he just looking to? Is he just looking to? Yeah, yeah. I don't. I don't know. That's a good point. I never even thought of that. Like the paper, paper's already been published. What were they? Were they planning to do a multi-day like editorial on this scandal, and he's going to stop it, or does he just basically mean, hey, I can get these pictures? I can pay money and get the pictures given to me. You know, well, see, I, I, yeah, the, the pictures that are already on everybody's breakfast table as they're drinking their morning <laughs> coffee. <laughs> and then somebody says, yeah, you can buy off this newspaper, but you can't buy off all the newspapers. Well, okay, so are we supposed to assume that all the newspapers in the country? Because, you know, like in America, you know, d- different cities have their local newspapers, and then you have the, the big national ones. Right. Ugh. Well, yeah, how many newspapers are in this part of town that are going to also be interested in publishing pictures of this guy's daughter? Yeah. And I don't know. Well, yeah, we might. I I think the whole thing is it serves the next plot point, which is them trying to, uh, like you said earlier, trying to, to save face. Yeah. Well, yeah, so so they decide, or Laura, it's Laura's idea. She mentions, hey, you know, the best thing to do here is really just to tell this, you know, set up this story that this girl is clearly mentally unstable. Um, she comes from a good background with, you know, um, upstanding moral she has an upstanding moral compass like her family and everything so the only way that she would be involved in doing this is if she had mental problems and then they go to the priest and he says yeah absolutely i agree yeah (laughs) Uh, he's a little too easy to they get yeah like they basically just get his blessing for the whole thing like he's going to go along with it right and yeah he's totally complicit in uh well complicit in their right. scheme to throw the daughter under the bus. And this was made in 1969, and it feels like it was written in 1949. Because, yeah. oh, it's such a scandal that your daughter is banging somebody? I mean, it's not like... It didn't specifically let us know that the newspaper was trying to make it look like she was one of the prostitutes that got caught up in the raid at the hotel. Yeah. And all she would have had to do is come out and tell the next reporter or whoever, this is my boyfriend, go fuck off. But there's a problem with that that I'll get to later too. But they're acting like well, the, the yeah. daughter of some rich guy having sex is the biggest scandal in the world in 1969. She could go to Woodstock in a few months and join half a million people fucking in the mud. In front of everybody. Who cares? <laughs> but I guess I just wonder whether or not that sort of um, liberal 
way of thinking that came out of the summer of love in the 60s made it this far to Europe by this time. You know, I know that everything seems to kind of get delayed as it moves, you know, the culture wise, as it moves across the, the globe. So, yeah, maybe. But, you know, she, she, it, it's not really obvious what the press is painting her out to be. Is she being described in the article as a prostitute or just a loose, you know, or just somebody who shouldn't have been, involved with those types of people at that particular kind of location. Like in other words, Hey, you know, if we, if there was i I'm trying to think of a modern example of this, like, um, you know, Prince Harry was filmed coming out of a strip club or coming out of, uh, the bunny ranch in Nevada. Huh. Right. Yeah. Um, maybe that's what this was all about. Like, you know, she was just hanging with her boyfriend in this quote unquote compliant hotel that, you know, where, where, where things, you know, the police raid the hotel over, uh, you know, on a regular basis, like, because they know that there's drugs there or prostitution or gangsters hang out there. Mm -hmm. So maybe it's just about her being like frat fraternizing with, you know, um, undesirables like crossing the tracks yeah so even if it was her boyfriend and she wasn't being a prostitute she was the fact that she was in a place where that kind of stuff happens would be right. bad enough that's enough yeah and we know there is something going on there because as soon as that woman screams down the hallway police you know people start you know, trying to get the fuck out of there as fast as they can so there are people yeah, that are doing yeah. stuff so, they're not supposed to do right and it's probably not the first time the police have raided there. So, yeah. So they decide, uh, the adults, the grownups, they decide that the best thing to do is to paint the picture that Lichia has a mental problem. And the next, again, you know, this is going to come up over and over again, but I, I'm not sure how I feel about the way that they set these scenes up. If you pay attention to what they're trying to do, you could almost make the case that all of this is done very much on purpose and very calculated, but you could also say, you know, they did it for effect and, you know, just, just for the sake of making it feel like a psych out, like a psychedelic kind of tinge to the, to the mood of the film. Mm -hmm. But the next thing that happens is, um, Licia is outside talking with Giovanna about the situation. And then they intercut that dialogue with Brignoli and Francesco sitting inside his office talking about it. But they inter they intercut the people that are outside with the people who are inside. And it makes you feel like they're all having the same conversation with each other, even though Two of them are in one location and two of them are a different location, if you pay attention. And very soon after that, all four of them are in the same room. So it just, it was really freaky to try and understand who was talking to who <laughs> and what the fuck they were talking about. Um, especially since I'm reading subtitles while this is all going on. Yeah, it's so. like one shot we see uh, her talking to the, her sister 
But in the background, you're looking through the window, and her dad and brother-in-law are talking, or right. Paterlini or whoever. But the same setup, shot setup that we have of her t- addressing her sister becomes her addressing her dad, who's now all of a sudden outside again. And then it cuts away to somebody else, and then it cuts back to... Um, Francesco, the brother-in-law, and he's indoors because there's a curtain behind his head. And it's like it takes that wandering conversation that has popped up so many times in the past to a whole new level. (laughs) Yes. Well, and they they do a wandering conversation a couple more times in the movie. Yeah, yeah. When I watch this more, when I watch this the second time, um, in order to like try to figure out what was going on, I think that the first part of this scene is two different conversations happening separately and they just edited them together to confuse the shit out of you or to make a point or to be weird. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I don't know what they were going for here and if it was done on purpose to be artistic or if there was some subtext going on or if it's just like, hey, let's try to freak people out. But um, when... When Brignoli says, I'm not asking for help, I demand it, all of a sudden, um, all four of them are inside the office. But before that happens, well, there's the conversation between the, the sisters is happening outside, the combination or the conversation between Francesco and Brignoli is happening inside, and he's responding. When you when you see like Licia or Giovanna say something, and then he's responding to what she said, he's actually not responding to what she said. He's responding to whatever conversation they're having inside the office. But then at the six minute and whatever mark, all of a sudden, Brignoli says, "I'm not asking for your help. I demand it." And he's talking to Licia, which means that they're now in another conversation, which is happening between the four of them inside the office. Yeah, but it looks like he's in the office. But when they cut back to the girls, Giovanna and Licia, the wind is still blowing their hair. (laughs) Yes. But I think I think that may have just been because the doors were open. Oh, okay. Well, yeah. And, you know, I, I, I chalk that up to the doors being open and th- this, this particular building or this <laughs> house or wherever they, they live, it seems to always have a lot of windows open and a lot of wind blowing through. So, yeah. but yeah, Leachia, it looks like she's still standing outside. And he's probably too cheap um, to turn on the air conditioner. Well, and you know, if Matt were on the podcast, I, I'd like to channel his, um, pragmatism for a minute. Um, he was saying, you know, they only had a certain amount of time and they filmed the, Le- the Lichia character outside the whole time. They just filmed her outside yeah. and they figured out how to edit it together later. And it turns out that she was always outside the whole time, even though half the time she's supposed to be in the <laughs> office. There should have been a shot of her outside the window, like holding up signs like that Bob Dylan video <laughs> <laughs> and the windows obviously closed and- and the sister banging. Yeah, that on would it, be funny. Doing sign language or something. That'd be cool. <laughs> but like eventually all four of them are in the office in the same shot, and Licia is just yelling at her father saying, um, 
Let's see. What does she say? Well, I think the thing that to, to take from this scene is that Giovanna is against the idea of Licia kind of taking one for the team, if you want to call it that. She's the only one that to stands the, up for her. Right. She's the only one that stands up for Licia. Um, and what I think is interesting here is that Francesco um, is really only the fiancé of Giovanna, but it seems like he even has more power in the family than Giovanna does because she's a woman. And it's like Brignoli doesn't want to have anything to do with Gianna when it comes to discussions about the business. But he'll talk to Francesco because Francesco will eventually be a son-in-law and part of the family and part of the business because he's a man. Um, so I found that to be really interesting that Francesco and Brignoli have the final say in whether Licia goes to the asylum and Giovanna's objection to it is not even like part of the consideration, you know, cause she's female. Yeah. So, and they make another female joke later on in the movie too. So, um, but that's what I got out of this, that Giovanna is right from the beginning is against this. And it just continues to build in her character over time. So, uh, Licia, um, changes it, it, off screen changes into this fantastic black outfit with these boots, um, and packs her bag and leaves to go to Mario's house. Um, when she gets there, um, she basically tells him what's going on and says that, you know, she's free to run away with him. But Mario is, seems very reluctant and is actually kind of saying, well, maybe it would be a good idea for you to take some time off and go to the mental institution. Oh, I'm sorry. We have to stop to recognize this red, white, and black leather jacket yeah, the that jacket. she's wearing in this scene. Because I know that Matt would go crazy over this. Um, it's really, really cool. Really cool jacket. Um, and she wears everything really well in this movie. So Yeah, she does. Um, uh, Mario, uh, we really don't know too much about him yet. He's kind of very eclectic. He's a photographer. He seems to be a, uh, an artist. He does sketches. <laughs> he likes to do blackmail every once in a while. Um, and he's a renaissance man. He's a renaissance man, exactly. So as Mario continues to kind of make the case that Licia should go to the asylum and get some rest, uh, Licia notices that her father's briefcase is in the room. And uh, she also sees um, a big pile of money in a bag or something. And then we have these quick cuts. Um, again, another mini montage. We see Brignoli's face three or four times. And then we see flashbacks to the scenes earlier when they were together in the brothel or whatever you want to call that. And then all of a sudden, Licia kind of says, okay, dad, I know you're here. Um, and so Brignoli emerges from the closet. And this was the part that I was confused about as the movie went on. Um, <laughs> how much of what happened with the photographer and the newspaper article and Mario's involvement with all of that, are we supposed to 
like, does Brignoli know about? Like, did he come? The first thing I thought was, you tell me what you think. The first thing I thought was, um, Mario called Brignoli and said, um, or no, I'm sorry. Let me go back. I like the two of them were in communication in order for Brignoli to be there before Licia arrived. So, and he brought all this money. Mm -hmm. So is he paying him off because is he paying off Mario because Mario um, was harboring Licia and said, uh, here, she's coming over. She's going to come over here and, and you pay me off and I'll, I'll let you have her. I'll let you take her from my house. Or was he paying her off? Was, was he paying Mario off because he arranged to have the pictures taken in the first place? Like, well, he hands him the envelope of photos that we see Brignoli open and check. And it looks like the same picture that was in the newspaper oh, already, yes. which again, I, this whole opening scandal thing just doesn't make any sense. He's, he, I can't pay off the newspaper. Well, I could pay off the newspaper, but I can't pay them all off. Well, they've already put out the, the, the scandals out of the bag now. Yeah. So, was Mario's plan, we're going to create the scandal and then I'm going to blackmail your dad to buy the photos from me that have already <laughs> been published in newspapers. That have already been published. <laughs> and when that little edit that you were talking about, that little montage where she's flashing back and figuring things out, I think it, that's the point where it dawned on her, why did I go to a sleazy hotel with a guy who has his own fucking place? Right. And again, that doesn't make sense either. So maybe she is crazy. You know, but Yeah, that's a good point. I didn't even think of that. Like what was the point of them going there? Yeah. If he has his own joint. He has his right. sketchy little fuck pad with the right, you know, the questionable murals that he did. <laughs> but uh, I I don't get it. But Okay. Um, well, yeah. And again, like I was thinking, okay, well, you could argue that Brignoli, because he's in such a powerful position in society, was tipped off and was given an early copy of the newspaper before it was released. But if that was the case, then Licia wouldn't have to go do this face saving thing. And it would have taken so, a, a five second scene of a, him answering the phone and the editor being saying, Hey, I got something you might want to see, you know, right. They didn't have to do it the way they did it. Cause they could have explained it yeah, very easily. It doesn't make right. sense. So again, I mean, the only thing that you can kind of say, if you're trying to make sense out of this is that maybe, uh, there's a sense that, you know, once this newspaper, if, if this newspaper continues to push this issue about Lichia, that um, more newspapers will catch on and the skeletons in the other people's closets will come out. Like you're supposed to believe that that's the whole idea. And so Brignoli shutting up the newspapers, 
by buying it, it doesn't make any sense he's buying the photos back from a guy who doesn't work for the newspaper um after the photos have already stop, come out after they've already come out and been published in order to stop the reputation and then he's going to send his daughter to a asylum and, for and somehow time. his daughter being promiscuous or whatever is going to lead to investigations of him and his business practices and all the shady deals he's doing. <laughs> I don't know about that. I mean, when Hugh Grant well, got busted in that car, getting a blowjob from a hooker, remember that way back in the nineties, yeah. I don't think they started going through his accounting books and <laughs> right. So, Right. Well, that was 20 years later. Plus, you know. Yeah. It was all this is all in the family, like the daughter. You know, It's kind of like um, when one of the Kardashian kids uh, gets into trouble and they go back in to Bruce Jenner or Caitlyn Jenner now and, and ask him about his uh, business practices like that wouldn't happen, yeah. obviously. Yeah. Yeah. But that's a more recent. <laughs> but anyway, but, yeah. Uh, So Lichia, you know, gets to the point where she realizes is that uh, she can't fight this anymore. Uh, even her boyfriend's in on it. Um, so she says, okay, um, dad, we've got an appointment with the asylum. And then we have again, another fucking montage. And it's the montage of them being in the car. Um, and while they're driving in the car, we get these edits of various shots of Lichia after she's gotten to the asylum, getting an injection and laying in her bed and standing all alone by a white wall. And again, I don't know if this is supposed to be fantasy, like the things that she's thinking about, or if these things really happened and it's just showing you what the future holds. Um, they even, you know, interject some business type stuff. Like, more ribbon cutting ceremonies and other like shots of the business and stuff to, I guess, give you the, um, or to send the message that, you know, life is going on outside of the asylum for the rest of the people. And Brignoli is continuing to be successful while she's in there, but that's all happening while they're driving there. Mm -hmm. Um, so I don't know if, it's an effective way of telling this story. It just seems like it's very uh, jarring and it just makes you feel like you don't really know what the fuck is going on. And I guess maybe that's the whole point, right? I mean, was that what they're going for? Probably. I mean, I don't know. Maybe that has something to do with the uh, other film movements that were going on in the 60s. Right. Where people were being a lot more experimental with editing and uh, camera angles and even narrative structure in general. Yeah. And yeah. it seems that in these montages, they're doing both flashbacks and flash forwards. And they seem to come when there's a time lapse, like the one between her getting her picture taken and then her dad having the newspaper in his hand already. Right. So, yeah, it's definitely during a, a time lapse for sure. Yeah, you're right. And I, it, I, it doesn't bother me. It's just it, 
it doesn't really make sense until the second time you've seen it. Because like I said, the first time yeah. with all those cuts of the cars coming and going and coming and going, uh, I, what the fuck is happening? You know, and it wasn't until yeah, the know. second, third time I watched it that I was like, okay, this is, that's what that is. Okay. Yeah. So. <laughs> well, and you know, the idea of the word psych out at this time period um, makes you think of psychedelic drugs. So mm-hmm. um, in addition to Lichia maybe being crazy and... Uh, you know, that part of it being the reason why the, the film is a little bit weird. You've got all of that cultural influence of these films, which typically were being, you know, I guess shown to the more um, lower, not, not like it's like these, these films were shown to more of the working class people. So it was like whatever the culture was going on at the time that was appropriate that's the style of the film, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know, but well, the, the I montage, think, oh, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. I think part of the influence for the title being psych out for murder. I mean, it, it makes total sense as a standalone film with the title because in a way, which we'll see soon enough when she comes out of the asylum, she is more, she acts more crazy than she ever was before. Right. But, in looking up this film on IMDb, I noticed the other, the only other film in all of the database that has the word psych out was a 1968 film that starred Dean Stockwell and Jack Nicholson and some other people. But, and that was a hippie dippy trippy type psychedelic film. Maybe. I'd never heard of the psych out, the other psych out film before, but maybe that was a little more in people's consciousness. And yeah. Okay. Uh, That's a really good point. Cause when I was doing um, some searching on YouTube to find this, uh, I did run into the 1968 psych out film. Yeah. And you're right. Um, it may just be the same idea that they're going to take, you know, Rosemary's baby and turn it into a bunch of knockoffs or um, the exorcist or whatever. And so in this case, it's like. Just trying to ride the coattails of that other. Yeah. Maybe psych out was uh, successful enough that they said, okay, well, yeah, you watched psych out, but how about psych out for murder? Yeah. You know, it's like the, it's like the next level. But at least it works better with this film because it, it fits. Because, you know, when you think psych, right. especially in the 60s, you're thinking psychedelic, but this is more mm-hmm. psychological, so you can still squeeze it in. But yep. having something like um, Herbie the Love Bug's Exorcism, where, you know, <laughs> that's not going to fit. <laughs> yeah, that's not going to work. Yeah. And there are some titles, you know, some uh, doctored titles uh-huh. where, you know, they're just shoehorning in reference to another film. And here it's, right. it's slipped on, but it's not exactly shoehorned because it does fit. Well, it's like, it would be like beach blanket bingo for the killer. Right. <laughs> bingo. Like every time he, he played his, his little like fetish was he had a bingo card. Right. Yeah. 
And he spelled out the word murder. In the, uh, in the, <laughs> that's terrible. Uh, okay. So anyway, after this montage is over, the last part of it is this scene with the camera going down this long hallway inside the asylum with the with the glass, you know, windows on the left side that you can't see through. Mm-hmm. Um, and then um, we get, I mean, it, it's kind of another freaking montage. It's, uh, it's Giovanna driving to visit her sister in the asylum with flowers. And while she's driving, we see the same exact hallway, but from the other angle where the windows are now on the right instead of the left. Two figures walking down the hallway, and you can tell that one of them is Licia. Meanwhile, Giovanna is walking down this lonely, desolate driveway to get to the asylum. She's carrying all of these carnations and roses. Um, And just as an aside, I found this movie interesting in a lot of different ways, but one of the ways that I found it interesting was comparing the beauty level or the hotness of Giovanna to Licia, because I think they're both actresses are beautiful, but um, I think that Licia is better looking than her sister. But, you know, there's something about Giovanna's look that is not as kind of traditionally feminine. Mm hmm. She's got short hair, and depending on how her makeup is done, and depending on what she's wearing, she's got that. Um, like there was a there was a Seinfeld episode where Jerry was dating somebody, and depending on <laughs> the lighting, she was either ugly or pretty. Right. Yeah. And um, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. So like that's what it reminded me of. Every time I saw Giovanna, I'm like, yeah. In this in this one, she doesn't look so good, but in the one where she's wearing the white bikini, she looks okay. You know. Yeah. Like, Funny how that so, works. Yeah. So anyway, um, what do you think? Do you think that uh, Licia or the character that plays the, the actress that plays Licia is the better looking of the two? I would say objectively, yes. If I just saw like eight by tens of, you know, portrait, facial portraits of them, I would guess, yeah, probably Adrienne Larissa is better, more uh more attractive in general. Uh, maybe it would help. It's, I have a personal thing about fake eyelashes, which kind of just bugs me, <laughs> but it, it, they're everywhere in this movie. So, and she has them. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. And later we even see Jobana taking hers off. So yep. I guess it evens out, but her personality, Licha just annoys the hell out of me. I mean, I do feel yeah, oh bad yeah. for her that she was in this situation where she, um, she got you know, put in an asylum for as long as she did, and everybody seemed to turn against her except her sister. And yeah, I sympathize with her, but I—I don't think she'd be somebody I'd really want to hang out with. And there are scenes later where we see Giovanna uh, interacting with people that I thought she seems pretty cool. Like, yeah, like she'd be more fun to to be around. And, yeah, see, uh, and see, see, the problem with this whole discussion is that we're talking about who's hotter and you're bringing up personality, which, oh, okay. Come on, dude. You know, right. Okay. So we don't, <laughs> that's not important. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
I mean, come on, women women do the same thing. I'm not going to apologize, you know. Okay, if you stood um, them next to each other side by side and they're both wearing identical bikinis and that was all I knew about them, I would definitely right. pick Leecha first. Mm-hmm. But as soon as they yeah, start moving right. and talking, uh, but that's not what you asked. Yeah, you got That's how you have to approach these questions. Okay. You are okay. the king of the of the kingdom, right? And the, you know the your 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 servants have brought to you two two women to choose from, right? And you can't you can't talk to them, and they won't say anything, and they're dressed exactly the same. Which one are you picking? And I have like two seconds to decide. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course it. You know, that kind of makes me feel like, uh, have you seen Flash Gordon, the film, the one that Queen did the, the one soundtrack? from the 80s? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I did in, when it came out. Okay. I don't remember. Well, I, I think, if I remember it correctly, there's a scene where Max von Sydow playing Ming, uh, his minions bring the, I don't know, the Flash Gordon girlfriend in front of him. And he tells them, bathe her and bring her to me. (laughs) So you setting up that scenario where the two of them are presented (laughs) to me. It's like I point at one and say, bathe her and bring her to me. And bring her to me. Yeah, it would probably be Leecha. The only thing I remember about that movie was, was there some sort of a rock that you had to put your arm in and it might get bitten or something? Uh, Maybe. But if there was, that's based on a true thing in ancient Rome there's a it's called the wall of truth it's uh it's like a free sculpture and you put your hand in the arm and there's somebody on the other side like a gladiator or a guard or something like that and the idea is that if you're lying they'll cut your arm off but oh okay uh, i don't remember that i'm not sure if that's what it i'm not sure if that's what it was I, i just i have this very cloudy memory of flash gordon and some other guy that I guess was an enemy. And they're both standing in front of this thing that looks like a rock that has a bunch of holes in it. Uh-huh. And it was like you had to put your – it was like a contest. You had to put your arm in a hole and pick the right hole. And if you picked the wrong hole, there was some creature that was going to bite your hand off. Oh, okay. I don't remember but, that. I remember uh, there was a scene where they had to kind of work in a, a fight that basically turned into a football game. <laughs> <laughs> because Flash Gordon, his on-earth identity or whatever, he was a professional football player. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, so how was he going to beat the guys unless it was a football game? Yeah, there was like some MacGuffin that he had to hang on to and they were throwing it back <laughs> and forth. And it was, it got kind of stupid. But yeah, I, I think I haven't seen that since I was like 11 or 12. So I don't remember that much. But I remember the bathe her and bring her to me bit because I've heard it used as a sound clip on other podcasts. And out of curiosity, I wanted to see where it came from. That's pretty funny. Bathe her and bring her to me. (laughs) Okay, so we were talking about Giovanna and Licia and Giovanna going to visit Licia in the insane asylum. She brings her the flowers. She shows up and she's very... um, Plain Jane. Her 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 hair is pulled back. Uh, she's wearing all white. She has almost no makeup on, and she's got this look on her face like I'm a zombie now. Mm-hmm. And um, Giovanna gives her the flowers, and she says they're very pretty. And Giovanna says, um, "Will you? You know, I'll be back <laughs> within within fifteen seconds of the two of them starting their visit." 
Giovanna says, I'll come back and visit you again. And I guess she's just there to drop off the flowers. I don't know. Um, and Licia says, you know, something like, uh, will you, can we go on a trip and take me far away from here? And, um, you know, you can tell that, um, Giovanna is not happy that this is happening. Like she, she genuinely has love for her sister, you know? Um, and I, I tend to believe that Giovanna's older, I guess I, I would think that Lichia is the younger sister and Giovanna's the older sister. So, um, yeah, I think so. So after the visit, we cut very quickly to Giovanna being continuing to be like really preoccupied with the idea, um, <laughs> that Lichia is, is having a bad time and, um, Francesco tries to change change the topic by starting to have sex with her and uh but she she uh she's still very preoccupied um to the point where um they you know they have to stop their love making because Gio- Giovanna can't even concentrate on that and she's thinking too much about Licia I guess she's laying there teary eyed um, talking about how sad she is about her sister. And then it cuts to him and he's just like, Hmm, time to boogie. Yeah, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> and she even goes along with it for a while, but then she starts crying some more. And I'm thinking, damn dude, know when to step back and he, give her a minute. He's cold. Yeah. Cold. But the one dimension for his character is that he's a horn dog. And they even make reference to yeah. that later. But Oh, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> the whole time he's just well and you know throughout the film i think at least a couple of times in the film she talks about how you know you only married me because you're gonna get you know to the factory and all this money yeah. so she's got some insecurities about the way that she looks and whether she can attract a man without any other reason but herself that kind of thing yeah um uh but she keeps saying things like, you know, I wish we had the courage, uh, to, you know, to, to, to do something about leaving this family, you know? Um, but at the end of this scene, you know, it's, it's not really resolved. She's still kind of preoccupied with this idea. And the next scene is, um, Licia coming home. And it's really not clear as to how long she was away for, but she returns with those, with that same like black outfit on, but this time she's not wearing the boots she's wearing mm-hmm. just these like clogs or whatever you want to call them. Um, and when she arrives home, there's no one there to like greet her and say, welcome home. There's a shot of the hallway. Um, and we then kind of start to evolve into yet another montage where she starts walking around the house and she's looking for people and she doesn't find anyone. And then, um, yeah, a couple of shots of the hallway. I, I, I really think there's too many shots of long hallways to just be a coincidence. There's got to be something going on with that. Um, yeah. Um, I wonder if 
they even knew that she was supposed to be getting out that day. Because she seems very upset that there's no one there to welcome her home or to greet her on her release. And the degree of that changes whether or not they knew that she was coming back. If they knew that she was getting out that day, I would expect at least Giovanna to be there. Right. But she seems super pissed that nobody's there. And the butler, obviously, you know, after a million years in the film industry, he's done saying lines. He's not going to say, <laughs> he doesn't tell her anything. And, uh, but who, but she must have just gotten a ride from a taxi service or something. Yeah. And it, it yeah, would seem kind of irresponsible for a mental hospital to release somebody without letting their, <laughs> you know, somebody know. It's true. Especially okay. the rich industrialist who's on, you know, supposedly paying the bills. But she's super pissed. And well, now she hates flowers. And she, Yeah. She, and, and, when, and once she gets home, she starts destroying the flowers. And then she runs a few laps around the pool for some reason. Yeah. And. That was more watchable than I would have guessed. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> that, that's, that's very true. But I think, you know, like there's this very little kid kind of aspect to her personality. Yeah. You know, when she, she le- later on, we'll see she leaves like the, all these wind up toys in the hallway and she just does funny things like we'll get into it. It, It's, it's really hard to understand what the fuck is going on and what they're trying to do here. But after that little montage of her running around the pool and stuff, we get to um, the family without Lichia. The rest of the family is in the, whatever room you want to call this, the piano room, the living room, the drawing room. And they're having a cocktail, I guess, before dinner. And all of a sudden, uh, Alicia comes running in and um, she has this shot out of a cannon, bubbly, happy attitude. Mm-hmm. Um, and everybody's looking at her like, what's going on here? She's, you know, she's home. Why is she acting like they, they just they're not happy to see her. They're very suspicious of the way that she's acting. So, um, she gives Francesco like an extra long kiss, um, (laughs) and says something like, um, oh, you should have come to visit me at the asylum because it's full of whores. Yeah. Um, and, (laughs) but then she said, you know, uh, don't worry. Um, you know, I know that you're, I I know that you're in love with my sister and all this other stuff. So it's like, not to worry. I'm not going to do anything to your husband. She she says, um, um, wait, I'll write it down because I thought it was such a weird line. Oh, she can't be jealous of me. I'm her sister. Uh, okay. I don't, you know, I don't have any siblings, but I don't see how that makes any sense at all. Right. (laughs) <laughs> and yeah, like you said, you should have come to the clinic. I guess it was the, full of whores. <laughs> so. I guess, I guess the, 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 what she's trying to say there is I'm her sister. I would never do anything to ruin your relationship. You know, like we love each other. So yeah. But he looked pretty sense. put off by the fact that she kissed him full on the mouth. I don't think that yeah. was like a usual thing. So I think she's doing this push and pull with him. Yeah. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. So she comes out of the yeah. gate playing mind games with everybody. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. She starts very early. And when I was writing my notes down, um, I started to collect a list of Lichia's pranks because she plays a whole bunch of pranks throughout the movie. Mm-hmm. And this one is her first prank. Um, and I think... I have seven pranks <laughs> that we'll get to as we go through this film. But the first one, which was really interesting, the way that they did this, they they look Alicia L- looks down and she sees like this this stabbing fork that you use like to stab big pieces of meat to cut it. Mm-hmm. Um and the as soon as you see that on the screen, the music like the like the the threatening music gets started and you're like, "Oh, Maybe she's going to stab somebody or steal it and use it later. Yeah. But instead, it's kind of a lot more innocent than that. She jams it into the electrical outlet to short out the lights. And then she runs away. And while everyone's trying to figure out what to do to get the lights back on, they hear her voice saying, I don't know what the hell she says, something about, no, I don't want to or something (laughs) like that. And they go to investigate. They go to her room. She's not there. Then they go back into the hallway and there's all these weird wind-up toys in the hallway. And then they hear her saying something again. But at that point, the lights come back on. They run back down to the dining room and she's sitting there the whole time at the table um, saying, why did you guys leave? Where did you go? (laughs) So, you know, again, this whole idea of the psych out, like, is she... Is she trying to, you know, maybe she's trying to make them think that she's crazy when she really isn't, or maybe she really is crazy, or she's trying to make them feel like they're going crazy. Yeah, it's reverse gaslighting, almost. Yeah, right, exactly. And it makes me feel like that's the intention, and maybe they just didn't execute it well. Like, this whole idea of, you know, this ultimately is a revenge movie. She's pissed Yeah. that... They all um, put her in this asylum to quote unquote save face. And now that she's back, um, she's going to get back at them. And so one of the ways that she gets back at them is to make them feel like they're going crazy, which is the whole antithesis of what she had been put through or or related to whatever. So my favorite part about that is as soon as the lights go out, we see Giovanna reach for Francesco's hand and she says, uh, hold me. I'm afraid of the dark or something like that. Right. And then they hear her voice down the, wherever it is. Uh, let me see. Yeah. Francesco, come here. You know, I'm afraid of the heart, the dark. Uh, they hear Licha and both of the men jump up and run off. <laughs> there's like the shot lingers on her sitting at the table all by herself in the dark. I thought that was just kind of funny. That Yeah, um, and you know, and and she's like, "Here, give me your hand. I'm afraid of the dark." Mm-hmm. And as soon as they <laughs> they hear the voice, they just jump up and leave her. Pure, got to go. And somehow <laughs> she set up all these wind-up toys so that they'd all go off at the same time. I you know, again, don't think too much about too many of these movies but i'd be kind of interested in how she pulled that off practically well yeah and this is another one this this i mean look 
we do this all the time when we watch these and like sometimes it falls into the bucket of you know you you really shouldn't be paying this close attention because you weren't <laughs> really meant to to see the movie over and over and over again right um but sometimes it falls into the bucket of there's a little bit more to this and they were trying to they were trying to be clever like one of the things that continues to come up for me when I watch this is that there's a distortion of time to a certain extent in this movie. And we really don't know how long things go on for her. How long was she in the asylum? Um, how much is happening off camera um, that we don't know about? And because of the way they edited the film together, we don't know whether things are happening and we're just supposed to assume that time has passed or not. So like this idea that all these wind up toys were already in the hallway and she was all the way back down and sitting at the table. It doesn't make sense in a logical world. Um, but again, the whole idea of this being a psych out film, like, you know, it's, it's purposely trying to disorient you as a viewer is that what they were going for? Or is that just a byproduct of the way they made the movie? I don't know. It kind of gives itself an amount of license to not make sense. Right. Sure. And that's fine. But I don't know, I'm just, I'm the curmudgeon sitting there with my head cocked and my arms crossed thinking, how the <laughs> fuck, you know, but. Well, you know, it's funny you bring that up. I was actually thumbing through. So Deadly, So Perverse, Volume 1 by Troy Howarth. And there is an introduction written by um, Ernesto Gastaldi mm -hmm. entitled, What is a Giallo? And this actually leads into something else that I thought of when I was watching this the last time. Um, Ernesto Gastaldi, who we, all, we should all know by now, is um, one of the like MVPs of the Giallo genre because he pretty much wrote the stories or the screenplays for, you know, 50% of the movies that are in, in the top, you know, top 50 list. Right. Um, and he writes, what sets a Jalo apart from another story, two things, a difficult to explain event and it's rigorously logical explanation based on the evidence and the details provided in the story. So that doesn't apply here, obviously, but I think the idea is that most people and even the modern uh, audience like ourselves who watch Jalo, as much as we enjoy the weirdness of it or the um, over the topness of it or whatever you want to call it, we still kind of watch these looking for logical explanations of you know, what is the mystery? And so I don't think it's a bad thing that when we watch a movie like this, that, you know, we catch ourselves doing that because we're like, okay, you know, this falls under the category of Jalo. And so if that's really a very broad definition of how, uh, you, know, you know, what a Jalo is and how you can describe it, then this movie is kind of, 
off the rails because you can't really figure out, you know, half of the things that are being shown to you. Um, it's almost like the film itself is a character, but it's an unreliable narrator type character. Mm-hmm. I don't know. You know, yeah. like usually, usually when you have these movies or, or books where you have the unreliable narrator, it's a person that's telling the story like in the usual suspects. Um, right. The Kevin Spacey character, he's telling the story, but the story he's telling is, is not the real story. Um, but in this case, no, nothing is telling the story. There's no person telling the story. We're just watching the story. So, you know, uh, the story itself is an unreliable narrator. I don't know. You could say that. but And I would think if she's the protagonist, which I, I think is kind of in, indisputable, maybe... You know, like I said, she comes out of the asylum acting crazier than she did when she went in. Right. That would imply conscious effort on her part to be like, oh, they, they're going to label me as crazy. I'll show them fucking crazy. Yeah. But right. I think the stuff that she's gone through probably has affected her for real. Not to the extent that, you know, I mean, she comes blowing into that dinner like she's on a Adderall train or something. And I think if we're supposed to identify with her or if the film is supposed to put us in her shoes and maybe that's why they're doing all these weird kind of, uh, I'm trying not to say the word psychedelic, but you know, trippy, insane edits and, uh, flashbacks and flash forwards to kind of put us on the same sea as she's on, you know, then why do we, have they been doing that since the very beginning? It'd be cool if the film right. started out without that stuff. And then, you know, kind of like a descent into magnet madness progression, where as things built up, then the directorial and editing choices would kind of ramp up along with, what the character is going through. Right. I mean, it, it's, to me, it'd be a little more interesting that way, but because this is a film that's all about crazy, this and crazy that, and is she crazy? She's pretending she's crazy. You know, it's psycho. Yeah. They kind of get away with it, but yeah. And what you were saying just made me think of something and I can't remember what it was, but, um, it's brought up um, several times. And in, even in the next scene, which I actually have labeled um, Leech's second prank. I mean, uh, let's not skip over the part that um, the next day, um, I think Leechia, does she, she, she borrows um, her sister's face cream and then... Francesca wants to know if she wants to have breakfast with him. And he, she says, well, what are you offering? And then she gives the big cleavage shot. And, <laughs> and she says, oh, you don't have anything I want. Um, Ouch. So that was, that was an interesting scene. Um, but right after that, we have this, <laughs> another one of these crazy scenes where Leisha is in her father's office. She has previously, apparently... Uh, hid a tape recorder that is connected to the phone line. 
Um, and now she's extracting it from under the desk. And there's a really weird part at 2333 on the YouTube version. Anyway, she has already put the tape recorder down and she picks up a picture of her father, which we don't know is a picture of her father yet. Cause we haven't seen it. Mm-hmm. Then she picks up a pen, a red pen or a red marker. And then the next thing she does is she presses play on the tape recorder. And then the camera pans to the right and we see that she's drawn devil horns and fangs on her father's picture. But didn't she just pick up the pen? So like, see what I mean about this whole thing about how much time has gone by in between each one of these cuts. It's like, Am I missing something here? Is it, can you can this be explained a little bit more logically? I don't know. I mean, and I'm picking it apart. It just it's a very minor detail, but I mean, are you noticing? Well, Did you I, notice that? Like, I didn't notice it as such a a time play, but I mean, I saw her pick up the frame and the red pen. And then she pressed play and she sat down. But before she sat down, we already saw that she had drawn on it. So, I don't the The, the way they're playing with time in this film, it, I, after a while, it just kind of quit trying to, yeah. to question right, it right. so much. But, I mean, again, are these just bad edits or are... Are they really playing with time on purpose, you know? And I don't know why, like, I keep asking the same question over and over again that we'll never get an answer for. But Well, um, along those lines, later in the same scene, when she starts picking up his papers and tearing them up, and then she turns on the fan and all the papers are blowing across. I think, yeah, during that, she's still listening to the tape recording of her dad's phone call. But then the door's wide open. There's a cut from inside the room, I guess her point of view, where she would be standing out into the hallway. And her dad is walking down the hallway right outside. He doesn't hear her. This is after she gets the gun out of the drawer, right? Yeah. So does nobody hear the tape? I mean, it's like she doesn't even uh, close the door. Or put in one of those little earphone things. And she's doing all this stuff. And the door is wide open. And he's right outside and doesn't seem to notice. Right. And she's sitting there aiming the gun at him. And Well, here's what's interesting. Again, if you want to pick this apart. And God knows there's we've already done it enough. <laughs> and we don't really need to. But I'm looking at this scene now. And... She's ripping up the papers and the fan is on. The papers are blowing everywhere. The call, you know, the, the, the voiceover of the call is over. And the next thing that happens is she's standing next to the fan. You can see the fan that's blowing. It's blowing her hair. And she looks down at the desk and she's, she's looking at something. Something has caught her attention. The next very next cut after that, is a cut where we just see her hand and the the midsection of her body over by the desk. And it pans up, and now she has the gun in her hand. 
but you don't see the fan anymore and you don't see anything blowing around anymore and you don't see her her hair blowing around anymore. Yeah, and, and the desk doesn't have any more of the torn up papers on it. Right. And, and so you could decide you could decide that the filmmakers said, okay, some time has gone by between the time that the papers were fl- were flying around and she was listening to that phone call and then when we moved to her pulling the gun out of the drawer. And we don't need to explain why time has gone by, but it has. Or you could just say they edited this together and when they put this scene on, the papers were gone and the fan was turned off just because they filmed these this scene in two different on two different days or in two different uh, sequences and they just didn't have any continuity person you know in the staff to mm-hmm. say hey uh if you're gonna edit if you're gonna film now you better turn the fan back on and put some papers here on the desk so that it looks like it's the same scene you know like uh, you don't really know um which one it is so yeah well if we're giving them the benefit of the doubt we would say oh they're trying to I don't know, maybe low-key manipulate the audience as far right. as the whole psych out thing. Like we'll have them wondering what the hell's going on too. And yeah, I would like to believe that because that would give me, uh, that would give me a, a little bit more optimistic um, view of the filmmakers and what they were up to. And, you know, it seems logical that they would, you know, kind of look for these opportunities to try to psych out the audience, just like they're psyching, like the characters are trying to psych out each other. Mm -hmm. But um, after she does this kind of um, Annie, get your gun or Annie Oakley, (laughs) not Annie, get your gun, this little Annie Oakley routine. um, We cut to a, um, a shot where she's, in the background and Brignoli is walking past with his newspaper and it looks like the door is shut to his office. So maybe he just, you know, he's involved with his newspaper. He doesn't even pay attention to the fact that she's even sitting there until she gets up, puts the gun in the purse and runs out to the driveway and says, Hey dad, can you give me a ride to town? Now I kind of want to bring this up because I'm thinking about the ending, you know, here's another opportunity or another situation where, again, I guess if you approach this as Lichia isn't necessarily an inherently evil person, she's just a child and she's trying to get attention. So she tears up all the papers and turns the fan on and then she finds the gun and She's pretending to use the gun. Like when you, when she first finds the gun at first, you think, "Uh Oh, this is going to turn bad really quickly. But then the way that she handles the gun makes you feel like she's just using it as a toy. Um, at least that's how it worked for me. But the fact that she's got the gun and she put the fan on and blew the papers all over the place and Brignoli just walked right past and didn't even notice is just another reinforcement of the fact that she's trying to get attention like a little kid would, and it's not working. And it never so, comes up later. I mean, we don't even well, see the silent butler going in there behind her, cleaning up the room. Oh, you mean, the, yeah, you he, mean the office thing never comes, yeah. Well, right. a lot of stuff never comes up later. We'll get to right. a big one pretty soon. 
But yeah. there's there's not a scene of him going in there and like, God damn it, where are my documents? Oh shit, they're all over the floor. What the hell? Yeah, nothing like yeah, that. Right. There's none of that. Yeah. Yeah. So did it really happen, or was that just like a fantasy manifestation in her troubled mind? Right. Or I don't. Know. And we got to experience it along with her, and nobody else did. Right. You know. But then if you have to question that, you have to question, did she really take a gun? Was there really a gun? And we find out yeah. later that there was, and she did. So, I don't know. Right. And that's the thing. It's, it, you kind of, as a modern as a modern film enthusiast, you kind of want to say, look, um, I just need you to tell me which direction I need to go here. Um if you don't want me to look into this and you just want me to watch this as just some, some weird film with, you know, weird continuity issues, then that's fine. That's how I'll watch it. But if there's more to it, just tell me that there's more to it or just give me a, 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 some consistent sign that there's more to it. But anyway, um, I guess that's why it's an interesting film because you never really know. Um, so Lichie gets in the car and says she's going to go meet a friend and they're driving towards the gate and the gate is closed. And I guess there's no servants around to open the gate. So Brignoli has to get out himself and open the gate. And at that point, Leach's third prank is, um, <laughs> she decides that she's going to, uh, release the emergency brake. And the car goes rolling towards Brignoli who turns around and is just about to get pinned by the car against the fence. And Leachia pulls the, the brake back up again and gets out of the car and cries and says, Oh my God, dad, I don't know um, what I would have done if something bad had happened to you. Um, And this makes you wonder, okay, maybe does she have a split personality? Like one part of her personality is I want to cause chaos. I want to do harm. And that personality is the one that released the break, but then the other personality kicked in, the one that is, you know, Lichia, the, the, the daughter who loves her dad and saves him and then goes over and, and you know, has a, has a breakdown. Like, it's just, you know, you don't know what, yeah. what to think. So is she mood swinging or is she just putting on an act? Is she trying right. to scare the shit out of him? But um, I don't know. It's weird. Yeah, because I mean, at this point, he doesn't—he doesn't have any indicator to, to believe that um, that she actually was the one who who released the brake. Maybe it just you know it it rolled on its own. But on the other hand, if the car is going to roll, I mean, I've had you know experiences with handbrakes and parking on ground that's not exactly level. You're not going to get out of the car and make it all the way to the gate which is a few feet in front of the car without noticing that it rolls. Right. I would right, guess. Right, right. So he's got to know she's, she was fucking with the brakes and maybe that's part of her play. She wants him to, to at least wonder if she was trying to kill him. If she's up to something. Yeah. Yeah. And a couple interesting things I know, well realized in this scene this little red car that they're getting into, the MG, that's the same car that the sister drove to the asylum. Right. And now Brignoli's driving it himself, and we see him later at a gas station. And So this is his car, or the family car. 
The guy's a rich industrialist, and that's like a Toyota Corolla version. Yeah, of, yeah, yeah. You know? Right. Uh, did they blow the wad on the budget for the location and nobody forgot to get a millionaire's car that he could drive? Right. Or why doesn't he have um, a, sh- a chauffeur? A chauffeur. Yeah. But I mean, a chauffeur with a car like that. <laughs> 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 yeah, I'd like to see yeah. uh, Mr. Italian Cinema History drive that. Yeah, that'd be cool. <laughs> but uh, this shot here of the license plate, it's as they're getting into the car. The the FI in the top corner of the license plate indicates Firenze, which is uh, the city of Florence, you would call it okay. in English. Uh, so that tells me that this car and probably this scene were shot in Prato, which is the town... Uh, which is a town right outside of Firenze. Okay. So, uh, I mean, nobody cares about that. But at the beginning, I no, said it was, it was filmed so, in Rome and Florence. Well, in Prato. Right. And Prato is within the the province of Firenze, which is Florence. So. No, that's it, it's what's interesting is like in the in the United States. Um, each card's license plate is specific to the state it was registered in. And there aren't any states in Italy, but there are territories or provinces or whatever the, whatever the term is used. Well, there are and regions, which would be region, equivalent okay. to the state. But license okay. plates, back then, they don't do it so much like this anymore. But back then, the license plate was attached to the province, which is kind of like a county. Like, yeah, in, in the States, you have the state license plate, but it always has a name of a county somewhere, like a, a decal on it that tells you the the county, right? Mm, no, not the county. There's no indication of a county when your license plate? Not that I know of, no. It's okay. just the state and then... Well, in Tennessee, there was. You'd have like... Was there? You'd have the Tennessee license plate, but then there'd be a decal across the top or the bottom, or maybe it was painted on there. Or stamped in, but it would say like Wilson County, Rutherford County, etc. Oh, okay. Yeah, I think they used to do that, um, but they don't. At least where I live in Pennsylvania, they don't do that anymore. Okay. So, well, in Italy back in the day, and this includes when I was living down south, in uh, when I was going to middle school, you could tell where a car was from because the, like in this one, it says FI each province has its own abbreviation kind of like state abbreviations like right. az for arizona uh so that made it easy to tell who was out of town during the summer i mean who was in who was an out of towner during the summer. right 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 you'd start gotcha. noticing all these cars on the street that don't have br for brindisi which was our province and another fun trivia fact that might be interesting to some people. In Italy, the license plate is assigned to the car, and it follows that car for the life of that car. In America, if you buy a car, whether it's brand new or used, you get a license plate that is attached to you as a driver for that car, and then you turn around and sell it, and somebody has to go get new tags for it, right? Oh, okay. It doesn't work that way here. So that car that we're seeing in this film from 1969, this MG license plate FI512341, 
if that car was still roadworthy and you found it today, that same license plate would be on it even now, even if it's gone through 10 different owners. Huh. Wow. Okay. That's, I think that's all the dumbass trivia I have for this one. (laughs) (laughs) Our number one, um, listening area for the podcast is the United States. So I think that, uh, I think what's really cool about having you on the podcast is that we get some real world kind of way to relate to some of the shit that's going on in these films. Even if like, you know, you basically say, well, I don't know. They might've done that 30 years ago, but they don't do that anymore. But, um, in certain aspects, it's like, yeah, um, we can tell, you know, you, you can kind of give us the inside scoop on some of this stuff, which is, is kind of interesting. Okay. Um, uh, well, so let's see, Leachia, um, after this little prank with the emergency break, she, uh, finds herself in town. And once again, we have another montage of Leachia and this time it's kind of sad. She, this was a really effective scene for me. She's walking around the town and she's going up to all the people that I guess she knows that she's friends with and everything. And she wants to say, Hey, you know, I'm back and nobody wants to talk to her and they're all giving her dirty looks and everybody that she approaches like walks away. And, um, she started to get the sense that, you know, she's really like this marked woman who is no longer accepted, uh, amongst the people that she used to be friends with. So, um, it's, you know, probably one of the more poignant scenes in the movie, but, um, you know, she's walking around the town kind of after stopping to talk to all these people and kind of getting the cold shoulder everywhere she goes. Um, she eventually just kind of goes to a shop and you can see that she's crying and, um, that's kind of it. Um, there's another scene where she's in the city where she's doing stuff. Um, and I got that scene and this scene mixed up in my mind. Um, once I watched it a, a second time uh, or a third time, whatever it was, I was like, Oh yeah, that, that scene ends now. So, um, the next scene, uh, is Mario pulling up to a house. I guess it's his little, um, bachelor pad. But again, like I was saying before, it kind of looks like the same exact outside of where the rest of the family lives, which is kind of weird. But um, you know, if you pay more attention to it, you'll see that there's a difference, obviously. But as a, in a quick glance, it's like, oh, is he over at her house? Or and, you know, just one more thing to make it confusing. But I don't know if you noticed this in the scene where Mario, the exterior shot, Mario drives up to his house. He gets out of the car. And then he walks up the steps and he waves. He waves. Yeah, I did notice that. Cause I don't know who he's waving to. Yeah, even the, I mean, the first time I watched it, I paused it and rewound. I'm like, who the hell is he waving at? Right. <laughs> but I did it with each subsequent watch. It's like, I forgot there's nobody that he's waving at. <laughs> and yeah. It's such a minor it's detail that you forget until you see it again. Well, I wrote that one down. So, um, he comes into his house 
and he goes to pour himself some booze and uh, guess what? Lichia's here and she um, has got a gun and she's sitting in this great big plush chair. Yeah. And uh, and I think these certain. are his new digs now that he got the money from Brignoli. Well, does it look any different than where Well, it doesn't have that shitty were. stuff drawn all over the walls. Yeah. Unless that's another part, like that was his studio room or something. Yeah, maybe that was a different room. But from looking at that, the scene where she shows up and the dad's there with the suitcase full of cash. That room doesn't look like it. I mean, it looks like a totally different place. Yeah. This. And we know that now he has money. So I just assumed that he uh, he leveled up as far as his living situation. Yeah, I think so. And one of the things that's happening in the scene is they have established. It's almost in a foreshadowing way. She has the gun. And as she talks to him. Um, she approaches him, she gets off the chair and she walks over to this weird kind of like, I don't know what you'd call it. It's like a, it's like a wall in the middle of the room that has like a decorative panels on it that. Yeah. It's kind of like a giant lattice work type thing. Yeah. Wall divider. (laughs) It's yeah. It's like a room divider. Yeah. It's not even a wall. It probably doesn't even go all the way to the ceiling, but there's so many shots um, of either her being shot through the borders of these things or him being shot through the borders of these things um, that, you know, will come back later. And I think they did this part on purpose. Yeah. I, um, I, in my notes, I have, this is definitely a foreshadowing. Yeah. Okay. Because she holds, yeah. she aims a gun at him through one of the holes in that. Right. That wall unit or, and that will, yeah, divider we'll see thing. that later. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. We see that at the end. So, and he's holding a bottle of scotch and I looked it up and now I can't remember what the name is. Cause I didn't write it down. It looked like it said smugglers or something. Yeah. Like that. Okay. So it's, is that like a brand? Old, it's called the old smuggler or. Yeah. Yeah. It's called old smuggler scotch and they still make it. Okay. Um, but they, it says it's, it's apparently been the old smuggler is a blended scotch whiskey with a history that goes back to 1835. Mm-hmm. So it's, it was, it was bought by the Campari group or something recently. So that's another one of their acquirements like the Anheuser-Busch for Budweiser. Okay. Um, but anyway, she goes to. She goes to shoot him and he thinks that he's done for, but you know, the gun's not loaded and he drops the bottle all over the floor. But basically she says, um, you're going to do what I say. Um, and I forget what she threatens him with. Like, why does he have to do what she, why does he go along with it? I forget what, what the motivation is there. Uh. Like, why doesn't he just say, I'm not doing that. I'm not going to, because she's threatening him with a gun. But then she says, I need you, I need you alive. 
So yeah, what's to stop him from just you. slapping her around as soon as he finds out it's empty? Right. Oh, okay. Because I already promised no more trivia, we'll call this a pop-up video moment. She says, uh, my father forced you by paying you $20 million. And I'm sure everybody's thinking, holy shit, $20 million. No, that was 20 million lire, lire. in lire. 1969, which I found and bookmarked for future references a website <laughs> that does the currency conversion and the time machine conversion. Well, no, not the time machine conversion. But in 1969, 20 million lire was the equivalent of $31,000 in 1969. Okay. Yeah, well, there's another part in the film where Brignoli says, I can't tell you how many millions I spent on that pool. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, it's it's kind of, you're like, you got to do the conversion. But I like the pop-up video reference. Okay, so that comes out to $263,960. So let's just round it to a quarter of a million. So converting the currency as well as converting or 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 as adjusting for inflation and and appreciation of mm-hmm. the currency. Yeah. You're saying that by today's buddy um Brignoli paid Mario about a quarter of a million dollars uh in blackmail money for this. Okay. I mean that sounds reasonable. It's not necessarily enough money to completely change your life and make you rich, but especially after the newspapers already printed the pictures, but (laughs) (laughs) that seems a little steep for uh, a horse that's already out the barn door. But I agree. (laughs) The next scene we see uh, Brignoli driving his car. And this was the scene that I was talking about earlier. I don't know why they showed this except for the fact that Maybe they needed a filler scene. Maybe they just needed to show that he was traveling somewhere. Maybe they needed to show Shell Gasoline in their movie. Maybe Shell Gasoline gave them some money to Mm. fund the movie. I don't know. But this scene completely isn't necessary. Um, Brignoli's getting gas. The guy says, hey, my brother applied for a job. And he's like, yeah, we're doing all we can. Or he'll get it. Or don't worry. And then Commendatore is mentioned in this scene. And he had to sign something. Do you sign for gas? Or I guess it was just he wasn't going to pay in cash. He was just going to sign for it. I'm assuming that was for the gas. But I like how he fires up a cigarette right next to the the gas. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But it was, you know, in 1969, people didn't realize exactly how flammable gas fumes were. Yeah. It took a while for them to sink in. I think think the people who needed to know knew, and everybody else was like, I don't give a shit. Like, I'm just going to smoke my cigarette wherever I want. And then, (laughs) you know, the science police came out and said, no, you can't smoke in the gas station. And every once in a while in in modern times, I'll see somebody who's either smoking inside their car or lights up a cigarette very close to the gas station. And I'm like, dude, don't you know like how bad that is to do? Like you should be going to jail. Like the siren should be going off. But oh, I remember in the seventies riding in cars with adults smoking and they'd have the window crack like half an inch. <laughs> right. <laughs> and you know, the back seat full of kids and 
Nobody thought twice about it. Or riding in the back of a pickup truck. Flatbed. You know, just. Yeah, or a station wagon. Yeah, a bunch of kids just bouncing down the road. (laughs) Okay. So Brignoli gets uh, his cigarette, gets back in his car, and um, drives away. But the next scene, he shows up at uh, a location that we've never been to before. This is the house of Laura and the minister, who I don't think has a name, right? In the movie? I don't think they actually know. The, yeah, the politician guy. Well, it's, is is this the chalet? Because later she makes uh, Paterlini take her, take her to his chalet. To chalet. Is that the same right. place or is that a different place? Look, you know what? You're probably right now that I'm looking at it. So this is his love shack. This is his love shack, baby. Yeah. He left his He's jukebox. He's got a Chrysler. It's about twenty. <laughs> he could use a Chrysler. This it's above twenty. <laughs> He's got his jukebox money. So uh, he walks into the chalet, and uh, Laura is there. And I thought this was a very like little minor thing, but I I found it cool. Um, he walks in, and he's about to pour his Johnny Walker Red, and he picks up the bottle. And he looks down and there's a glass of scotch on the rocks that's ready and waiting for him. And he makes this little face like, ah, yeah. she, she poured me a drink already. And so Laura comes out and um, uh, they're having it. Okay. Yes. Yeah, so, okay. So now we know they're having an affair. Um, oh, this is the scene where she shows Brignoli the plans for the motorway. And that her husband, once he gets elected, he will like have the 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 power to approve this thing or the deciding vote or whatever. Um, so they um, hatch this plan to have Brignoli buy up all the land that is uh, the, where the motorway would be constructed on so that they can sell it back and make a huge profit with this insider information. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's it. They just have this kind of celebration about the fact that they've got this great plan. And meanwhile, Mario has some sort of a device that he's put through the door to record. Later on, when we see the film of the two of them together, I don't know if that's supposed to be this, uh, this time. Cause I don't know how he, it doesn't look like whatever he has outside wired up is a film video camera. Yeah, that looked like an audio reel-to-reel type thing. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know, because I hadn't thought about that. What we see later in the the film they show the priest, or whatever, it doesn't really match what we are seeing right now. Yeah. So, I don't know. I guess they did it. For a while, just did a uh, an edited cut. Yeah, I the mean, best maybe they, one. right? I mean, they maybe they were pursuing them for various with various methods of blackmail. I don't know. Um, well, when we get to that, it's isn't it, the 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 revelation of the affair through the pilgrimage to Lords is a really interesting scene. And when we get there, we'll, <laughs> yeah. we'll talk about it. But um, so 
Yeah, Mario's basically happy hearing all of this and knowing that he's recording it. The next scene, we have another leg shot of Lichia. And this little montage is kind of strange. Um, she's sitting on the chair. She's got a towel wrapped around her. And then she walks into the bathroom. And she goes to get into the tub. But other things start flashing back. She's got this weird... She's really gorgeous in this shot, too. <laughs> there's there's an edit of dolls on the floor. There's an edit of her getting into a bathtub. And then there's it cuts back to her going to lie in the bed with a towel on. Um, well, what's happening? She's sitting there. Wait, let me get to where it is. There was a she's sitting in player. the chair next to the record player. She's filing her nails. And she hears Francesco and Giovanna next door because their bedroom is next to hers. Right. She hears Giovanna saying something like, oh, Francesco. And then, you know, he's a horn dog. And, uh, so she gets up and she walks towards the door and like she listens for a minute. And it's pretty low in the mix. But I think the idea is that she hears them going at it and gets a little, I don't know triggered somehow and decides That's to take interesting game. because the few okay yeah i see it now she goes over to the door she goes over to the door and she puts her ear up to the door and she can hear yeah. it okay and then thankfully decides to take a bath but yeah they could have uh, edited that a little better if you ask me <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's just weird that <clears throat> she's got the towel on. I guess the towel is, since she got out of the tub, she's already taken a bath. She goes over to the door to listen. But then there's you know, like there's a cut of the dolls, and then there's a cut of the tub, and she's getting in the tub. And then she's walking to the left, and you think she's getting in the tub, but she actually rolls on the bed. And then she's in the bed and she's looking at the door and then she's getting in the tub again. And <laughs> yeah, I just assumed that after she, left, after she walked away from the door, she was going into the tub, but you're right. Why would she be sitting there wrapped in a towel, filing her nails before <laughs> she takes, because don't you do nail stuff after the bath? Cause your cuticles are softer. And uh, like you know more about it than I, that's more information than I've ever been told, but yeah. That makes sense. Well, even if you take a shower, just notice next time if you decide to cut your toenails. Do it when you come out of the shower. They're a lot more. Oh yeah, that's true. I usually yeah, this this is way too much information, but yeah, that's yeah. what I do. I wait till yeah. I get out of the shower. So this is a uh, um, grooming tips, chow chow. <laughs> you get a bonus ablutions, this month. <laughs> ablutions, chow chow. Ablutions. Uh, wow. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't used that word in a while. Yeah. Um, we discussed the filone. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, I'm beating a dead horse, but like. This movie keeps messing with our minds, dude. Why show the past and the future and the present, like all scrambled up just for a few seconds and then get back to regular time? Like, it's just, maybe it's it's worth going back and seeing like whenever they do these weird montages where you can't tell if it's the future or the past, is it always 
something involving Lichia, because if it is, then that would be like, hey, we're trying to characterize her. Um, but if it's happening with other characters and she's not even in the scene, then you don't know. Well, anyway. they do it later when it's the inauguration of the swimming pool. Yeah. And I don't think that's really a Leecha centered thing. But. No, but she, you know, like she's she becomes the center of attention in that scene when yeah, she's that's on the true. dance floor. So I guess it's the next day Lichia is um, all dressed in this crazy hippie flower, long sleeve, big collared top that doesn't go down past the tops of her thighs, which is a very Marsha Brady outfit. If I, if I think about it, Um, you can even see her pants underneath her, dress at one point anyway um giovanna and uh francesco are laying outside by the pool so uh licia takes this opportunity to construct her fourth prank that will be used later in the movie um she starts doing these things with a fishing line and the mirror and the door and it all looks very involved and very complicated. And once you see what it is later, it's not very involved or complicated, but she makes it out to be. Um, one of the things that's disorienting to me about this is that I wasn't paying attention close enough to realize that, you know, at one point during this montage, she's in her room and then later on, she's in her sister's room where the mirror is. And then she's back to her room again. Um, when I was watching this the first time, I thought that she was just in the same room. I, I, I didn't really know what the hell was going on, to be honest. But yeah, it doesn't make sense until you see the payoff later. Right. There's a huge payoff. You're, you're trying to figure out what the fuck is she up to here. Um, and the fishing line will actually be used later on at the end, too. So it's kind of a, another foreshadowing moment. But we then cut to this next crazy scene uh, out by the pool. We see the, 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 the butler or whatever he is again walking around. There's a couple of birds on the rotisserie uh, over the grill. And um, the older couple is laying by the, the pool. And Leecha comes out and just kind of... Um, takes a little spot by the pool and starts to do her nails. As she walks out there, she steps right over Francesco's face. Right. So you can see up her skirt. So she's giving him like the upskirt of the the century. And then she goes and sits down and starts painting her toenails. And it's like she's crotch flashing them the whole time. Yep. And even Giovanna notices and she kind of catches him ogling at her and she just kind of smacks them like oh you silly oh, and they laugh it off <laughs> what the hell kind of family <laughs> is this it's just this playful free love 69 kind of mentality i guess yeah it's like oh yeah i can't be jealous she's my sister you're you're obviously right. staring at her panties but <laughs> haha silly you <laughs> Let's get in the pool. <laughs> yeah, but um, yeah, this the Licia actress. She just looks really good in in this scene, like with the sunlight, and she's just very photogenic. Yeah, 
Um, but again, now you're making me pay attention to the eyelashes, and I hate you for doing that. Um, well, I mean, they just don't work <laughs> for me as much. <laughs> yeah. It wouldn't be a deal breaker if I was playing. Right, right. You're not going to throw her out of bed. Right, yeah. exactly. Bathe her and remove those eyelashes and then bring her to me. <laughs> and then bring her to me. There you go. So the next thing that happens is absolutely ridiculous. The The older couple decides they're going to go swimming. And uh, Francesco, he acts like this crazy, wacky dude. Like, I, I, he reminds me of one of my uncles because uh, I have an Italian side of the family. And it reminds me of one of my uncles. Just the way that he does mannerisms and stuff. So he decides to go for a swim. He jumps in. It's cold. Uh, Giovanna decides that she's not going to go in. She fakes him out. She has a great body too, which is, um, it's nice to have a, a, a second string, uh, when the, when, when the, uh, when, when the leadoff, uh, varsity, whatever is not in the, in the scene, we still have the, the, the junior varsity. Um, anyway, Licia decides to play her next prank, which is to throw the electrical outlet plug thing into the pool while they are in. You know, she's got her feet in and he's all the way swimming. Now, I was under the impression that this would kill them uh, from yeah. the electric shock, but easily. And I mean, First, I have to wonder why that grill is electric because it looks right. like a regular. It looks grill. like a charcoal grill. <laughs> and then the way the plug is, okay, on the grill, there's a female socket. Yes. Right. And that's not safe because if you by accident grab the male end of it, like Leecha does as soon as she picks it up, if you touch both of those poles at the same time, you're fried. Yes. And it theoretically it would have worked if it was a normal extension cord. But anyway, the point is, like we said earlier, where she tears up all those papers and blows them across her dad's office and there's no consequences or follow up. Yeah. This is something that they're in the pool. They know that they got <laughs> shocked and it just cuts away and it's like it never happened. <laughs> it's not like oh my god how well like the thing with the the car and the handbrake okay you can imagine especially if you're a dad who's trying desperately to believe that your daughter wouldn't try to kill you or mind fuck you maybe i didn't have the brake on as tight as i should have and maybe it was an accident but she saved me and she seemed pretty upset okay i you know there's a uh there's plausible deniability. Yeah, that, yeah, there you go. Right? Right. You're in the swimming pool with your electric <laughs> barbecue grill over there, rotisserie chickening in the... In, <laughs> why does that have to be anywhere near the fucking pool? I mean, come on, butler guy. What Extension cords and swimming pools should be as far apart from each other as possible. But That's for sure. They get shocked. A, it doesn't kill them. B... It's never mentioned again. Never. And it doesn't take Sherlock Holmes to figure out, psycho bitch, drop the fucking extension cord in the pool. <laughs> <sighs> but, you, you know, like, 
I can't believe that audiences that went to see this movie in 1969 watched that scene and didn't have the same reaction that we're having. It just seems like... I, I, I'm, maybe I'm not phrasing this correctly. What I'm trying to say is... Um, they were all stoned. <laughs> do you think that, like, back in 1969, it was possible that maybe electrical voltage was not regulated like it is now and maybe the amount of just like you know you watch these old jolly and they get on the phone and there's a way to like in that one movie um seven blood-stained orchids the one woman in the film i think if i remember correctly like she couldn't hang up until somebody on the other end hung up like the, the technology was different. So I'm wondering if like, is it possible that this particular electrical cord was at a voltage that was, you know, it only needed to be, I don't know, 50, 35 volts in order to power this rotisserie grill. <laughs> enough to and, cook a chicken. <laughs> and it wasn't enough to shock everybody to death in the whole pool. So it's, it's like, it was just a prank instead of it being like, an attempted murder it was just a prank well and something i i just thought of they showed us earlier <laughs> speaking of electricity they showed us earlier where she put that carving fork or whatever the hell you call that thing yeah what she puts it in the anyway? I, I have no idea and i'm too tired to look it up but she puts that in the socket the regular wall outlet plug socket thing yeah as soon as it touches it and I did check, and the, the handle was plastic. Otherwise, I was really going to go off on this film. But that <laughs> shorts out the whole house. So yes. I guess if you're following that, if you drop an extension cord that's cooking your chicken right next to the swimming pool, into the pool, maybe it just shut itself off. Like it flipped the breaker or something. Yeah, and but I before mean... Before it had a chance about- to kill them. I don't know enough. Right. Okay. Like in other words, you know, everybody says get out of the pool if there's lightning, because I would assume that the amount of electrical voltage that you get from lightning striking a pool is a lot more than if you put your, you know, your plug in there. So, you know, maybe it's just, you know, we, we came up, we came up in the, in the eighties thinking that, you know, if a plug and water came together, then it was pretty much death. That there was no, there was, there was no other way around it. Like you're, you know, because we were scared into being safe, I guess. Okay. I, I just thought of something else that kind of makes me feel stupid, but <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm confident enough to share it with the fan base. Um, <laughs> here in Italy, the houses are wired on purpose so that there is a limit to how much electricity you can use at a given time. I don't know if this is the same as it was in 1969, but I know from my own family moving back here uh, and talking to Americans that come to the base, they are very put off by the fact that they cannot run their washer and dryer at the same time 
And if they have the coffee maker going, they can't use the microwave until it's done. Because as soon as you do that, I mean, at least four or five times a year, I have to go down to the basement to turn the, to flip the, they call it a salvavita, which is like a lifesaver. But basically it's, it's a circuit breaker. I have to go down to the basement to flip it back up. And the reflex from Americans seems to be complaining about socialist government control over your lives. But really, it's <laughs> it's in everybody's best interest, if you think about it, that not everybody's burning as much of the electricity as they fucking want to all the time. Sure, of course. Right? And it it's a cultural thing. It takes a... I mean, a culture shock, no pun intended, type thing that you have to kind of get used to when you move over here. So, I'm I'm not saying if I was in 1969, I would definitely be fine with somebody dropping an uh, extension cord into the pool while I'm in the water. But it might not, there's like enough shadow of a doubt in my mind that maybe it wouldn't kill them. Right. I don't know what. But there's reason to believe that it might not have been as bad as I would have expected. So, well, I mean, look, I I think that what we've been trying to establish here is that whenever there's an opportunity for Lichia to do something to get revenge or to you know to take out her her aggressions on her family. Mm-hmm. It looks as if she's going to do something very dangerous, like the carving fork, which is what it's actually referred to. The carving oh, fork okay. could have been a stabbing implement, you know, into, into somebody's eyeball or throat or something. And the gun could have been used at that particular time, but instead it was kind of, she was playing around with it, you know, like it was a toy. And now here we are again, um, Trying to decide as the audience, is Licia just regressed into this childlike, playful, want to play pranks on you, don't really understand the repercussions of my actions kind of persona now? Or is she uh, really testing the boundaries and, and trying to ramp up to murder? Like, is she... Is, is she is does she is she aware of the fact that the things that she's doing could really be dangerous or she's just got this regressed little kid kind of mentality and doesn't understand you know yeah. really what you know what what the what the results of her actions are going to be i mean well, on it's top of what's going thing. on in her mind, what's going on in everybody else's mind? Because nobody brings up the thing with the wind-up toys that we see. Right. But don't forget that the thing that the the one thing that we learned from the telephone call from the doctor was that she's going to have a really hard time integrating back into regular life and with the family and you have to give her as much love and affection as you can. Um, right. So I think that if they um, have any sort of like, you know, complaints about her behavior, they're keeping it at bay because they're they're trying to do what the doctor has. Told so they're them treating they her with kid do. gloves because of yeah, the, 
Okay, but That's I think I the think. kid gloves would come off after a swimming pool electrocution. <laughs> <laughs> you might think, right? I would, yeah. Time to send you back to the asylum. You just tried to electrocute everyone. Yeah, get the fuck. We're done. No. I mean, there's a limit, right? That's funny. Uh, okay. Well, where the hell are we? Okay. Um, yeah, that, that's a really crazy scene. The first time I saw it, I couldn't understand it. The second time, third time, I'm still going, you know, he, Francesco makes this face like, ah, and he puts his hands up and then, you know, um, uh, Giovanna, it's only her feet that are in the water. So she really doesn't get as shocked as the other one, but you're right. Like it just, it ends. No one says anything. When the first time I saw this, I thought, oh, she's going to kill them both. Yeah. It's like, here comes the first murder. And I thought, if nothing else, at least that asshole Francesco will be gone. (laughs) But no, he's right back. Oh, well. Oh, well. Anyway, we better move it along here. Yeah. Uh, So the next scene is another one of these montages that uh, includes a continuous conversation. And... Is ver- the first time I watched it, I couldn't even figure out what the fuck was going on because the scenes were changing so quickly. And at the same time, I'm trying to follow what they're saying, but I have to read the subtitles. I'm like, what the hell's going on here? But really, all it is is they're walking through several factories, and it's it's uh Pater, Paterlini and right. Brignoli and they're walking through several factories and they're talking about this idea that they are now going to open uh i guess a rec center or um the what the fuck is it at least a swimming it? pool a spa or Le- oh, a leisure center that's what it's referred ah, to as okay and I guess like they're doing this to get good publicity for something because they have like film crew coming out. Uh, yeah, they're going to have the uh, like the inauguration or the grand opening. Well, in Italian, right. you call it inaugurazione, but it, it means right. grand opening. Sure. Uh, of the swimming pool. Yeah, but I I couldn't follow this because this section of the film, it's like they're throwing six different things at you at once. And they all take me out of actually paying attention to what they're saying. You have the walk and talk, right? Like like you're watching an episode of West Wing or something. Yeah. So you have the walk and talk with the wandering conversation, with the... Time jump back and forth and sideways <laughs> editing. Yeah. Plus, the icing on this mindfuck cake of this section of the film is the fact <laughs> that you're hearing them have this conversation. Neither one of them ever moves their lips. Nobody's <laughs> talking. And every time this starts up, I just I get so fixated on the fact that is anybody's lips moving? Okay, are they talking now, or is this them talking later? Or, or wait, what? <laughs> who said that? Him or her? I, I mean, him or the other him? I, what? Right. It, it, and then I'm thinking, wait, they're in a, they're in like a dirty warehouse. No, wait, no, now they're in a swim. Wait, what? And, and <laughs> you're right. They, and by the end of it, I'm like, uh, I don't know, something about a swimming. <laughs> yeah, this is great. You never yeah, see their I'm watching mouths it move. Again. Nope, not once. 
And was now this like a voice? And now we're in this the This is like a lot. voiceover. You know, you know what it could be? It could be that this conversation is happening in the scene that we eventually land in. Yeah. But while while the conversation is happening, they do a whole bunch of cuts and and different montages with the conversation happening as a voiceover. And that's why they're not actually, it's not a walk and talk. Maybe it's just, they're it's in the office and having talk. a meeting. Yeah. And then they, yeah, they faked this out. It was a sit and talk the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> well, ultimately what comes out of this, besides the fact that they've been talking about the inauguration of the swimming pool, which we never actually see later, by the way, um, they just bring all the hippies in and the band and they have a, a party. But yeah. anyway, Brignoli is told to go up and buy all the land that, uh, or I'm sorry, Pat- Patrolini is told to go up and buy all the land that Brignoli told them to, to buy. And, um, don't make sure you don't have my name associated with it at all. Um, I'm too close to the minister. And then, um, he says, I've already negotiated with some landlords, it's a matter of appeal, sir. And then Brignoli says, uh, oh, no, it's it's Paterlini again. He says, if they were all women, everything would be finalized by now. <laughs> and then they start <laughs> laughing. <laughs> and I guess that's supposed to be um, a joke that women aren't good at negotiating price. Is that what the joke is? Like it's real easy to manipulate a woman because they don't know how to haggle in business. Um. I mean, that's what I got from it, but. Well, he says it right after it's a matter of appeal, so. I don't know. Is he saying maybe if he was dealing with women, it'd be easier for him to get what he wants? Because later, there's kind of a. There's some lines where it sounds like he thinks he's some kind of ladies man. And she says to him, I've heard stories about you. And I kind of find that hard to believe because he seems kind of like a dorky, nebbish type guy. Yes. So. But apparently he is the playboy because he, like in that scene that you're talking about, he says like, yeah, you know, I'm kind of bored. It's not like being in the city. So, um, you know, I, I spend time with the ladies to keep myself occupied or something like that. Yeah, so maybe it's more about his, uh, what do you call it, his uh, his game the fact, than yeah, the fact their... That he said, he's the one that says it, too. Yeah. So, like, he's a misogynist to a certain extent. Yeah. Yeah, so I think he's Beyond. talking about his ability to coerce women more than their ability to have. Right. So... Good for him. So after that scene, we're back with uh, Giovanna and Francesco. They talk about the factory again. Uh, they talk about whether or not, you know, she she asks him, did you marry me just for um, the factory and for my money? And while he's trying to give a good answer to that question, all of a sudden he looks in the mirror and he sees the door open and Lichia is sitting there with no clothes on in the bed. Um, 
giving him, you know, this, this look and he's given her the look and, um, actually, no, she doesn't look at him. Does she, he looks at her. No, she looks at him. Okay. Um, and now we know what the fishing line prank was all about. It was about trying to get the door open at a very specific time when it just so happens that <laughs> Francesco would be standing in front of the mirror. Like <laughs> so many things had to happen <laughs> for that to work. The right yeah. way. She had to be in a place where she couldn't see the mirror. He had to be there and she had to pull it right. It's like, how does she know he was standing right close to it? Okay. Right. Again, it, go with it. Go with it. Yep. The next scene, the unnamed uh, minister slash politician character is arguing with uh, Brignoli, but I don't know what the fuck they're arguing about. Um. And it doesn't really matter. So, like, I didn't really go into it. Um, yeah, I I don't know. It kind of doesn't make look- sense because they had just did the ribbon cutting thing for the new factory, right? That was at the beginning of the film. And now they're right. doing... Well, I think that a lot, a lot of different things have happened with the business since then. Right, since the, the whole scandal thing. Right, okay. But really, the, the whole situation is that I think the priest has the is the one who's closest to the workers, which is why he's on some sort of payroll, or they're at least doing something for him, give him a favor. Yeah. The minister and his wife, you know, are together, but she's with Brignoli, Am I saying that right? I think Brignoli. Um, Brignoli. Brignoli. And then, you know, you've got Petrolini, who's like the underling. But yeah, um, I guess there's like some dissension among the group. Like, you know, Brignoli doesn't like the minister and they're fighting. But then when Laura comes in, she's like, look, um, you just have to put up with his bullshit for a little bit longer. We need to be mature here because once we get to this next level, everything's going to be fantastic. Just keep buying up that land. He's going to be very useful, blah, 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 blah. Um, but as they're talking, um, she kind of gets a little bit, uh, aggressive with him and says, look, I made you who you are. So, you got to do what I say um, and play nice with my husband or with the minister or whatever. Um, and then all of a sudden it's like, okay, it's time for this swimming pool to be opened, this grand opening. And as they walk out to greet this huge group of people that are coming to the party, Lichia just happens to be standing right by the door. Um mm-hmm. And was probably listening to what was going on. So, yeah. Um, the crowd arrives. They bring in various pieces of the drum kit, you know, as they're running in. And then we get uh, a wonderful montage of hippies dancing, which, of course, gives it a point on the Jalo score. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and to this me, was, this was the longest part of the film. <laughs> <laughs> you 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 have no uh you have no patience for for 60s hippie for 60s hippie hippie dancing montages. Yeah. What what's what's funny about this sequence is there's a guy in the band with the green 
uh, jacket on that looks like a cross between like Pete Townsend and um, one of the guys from Pink Floyd. Um, yeah, I kind of got a John Entwistle. Thing yeah, yeah, there you from, go. Uh, I think you're right. It was just that yeah. mop top British invasion kind of look. Yeah, because Italians rip off bands as well as movies. <laughs> no, honestly, well, why not? Do. Yeah, but they did so many quick cuts here. Like, and it's one thing to do a bunch of quick cuts where you're not really supposed to look at them too close to see what's going on. <laughs> like, okay, here's a bunch of people dancing. Here's another bunch of people dancing. Here's a bunch of people dancing. Oh wait, here's our main characters doing something. Wait, no, it's gone. Um, so was this back, song on the soundtrack? Yeah, this song's about? on the soundtrack. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. All the songs are on the soundtrack. So, so as we continue to watch this montage, we see that, um, all of our main characters are kind of sitting um, and doing their own thing. I think at one point, Licia is dancing with Francesco, but then she starts dancing with Pat- Paterlini. Right. And uh, Brignoli is watching and he's smiling and uh, Giovanna is watching, but she looks a little sad. And then we have a couple of really great shots of Licia shaking her hips um, the belly button, the, the tassels. I mean, it's just, it reminds, like if, if you've seen that, that Tarantino film that just came out that, you know, his most recent one and, uh, Margot Robbie, that's who this reminds me of, which of course it would be the opposite, right? You know, this happened way before Margot Robbie was even born. Um, but that's, that's what I got out of this scene. It was just Really, well, that film takes place in 69, right? Right, and right. this is 69 for real. So, it's very possible that Tarantino, you know, ripped off this as, movie as, as yeah, as well read <laughs> as he is with films. He saw this movie and said, I gotta find an actress that looks just like Lichia and uh, yeah, put her in a film. Well, I think a lot of I think that was kind of the look back then the long straight hair and yep, fake eyelashes and stuff. Um, one thing I blinked and missed mentioning right before this, when Laura is arguing, well, she's trying to calm down Brignoli because he's mad about the husband or the minister. Right. Um, she says, shall we also film the scene? The cameramen are here. Remember that line that she drops? That's kind of foreshadowing for something that comes up pretty soon. Well, yeah. Plus, I mean, we really don't know how they managed to get a, a, a this film like this, this, how they managed to film the two of them together later on when they, when we see this pilgrimage movie, but right. And there's no way she could have had any clue. I mean, Laura couldn't have known, but it's just kind of funny that she mentions it. Shall we film it? There's cameramen here. It's like, right. you don't even know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Walked, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So I thought that was a cool little... Uh, that is kind of cool. Call forward as opposed to a call back. But Yeah. Cool. Okay. Call, a call forward, is that... We could look that one up if, it, if that's a legitimate term. No, I yeah, think let's, we made it up. let's trademark it. Uh, it's like Filone. Um <laughs> What, uh, uh, oh, okay. So the, the only other thing that I took away from that scene was that, um, Paterlini is really 
kind of starting to be on screen a little bit more. So yeah. we know that he's going to be in a, in a, in a, an important scene later, but, mm-hmm. uh, he ends up dancing in the circle with Lichia, who eventually goes down to dancing by herself, but he's seen, uh, dancing with a bunch of different people. And then, you know, I think at one point Lichia talks to him about it later when they're in the car, but that yeah. scene ends and we get to the scene where uh, the priest comes in to watch the movie that was made about the people who work for Patrolini going to visit Lourdes. And where is Lourdes? That's in France. So. Okay. Did they say Lourdes? Well, in the subtitles, it's, it's, it's mentioned. Is it L-O-U-R-D-E-S? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's France. So the setup is they're in the, the drawing room or the living room, and they've got a film projector, and Laura, is on, Laura and uh, Brignoli are on one side, and the priest is on the other side, and um, Licia is in the back, and she's bringing in the film and turning the lights on and off. And they turn the lights down and this is supposed to be something that they're surprising the priest with. (laughs) Um, And I think this is supposed to be some sort of gesture of me and my, my factory and my people have made a pilgrimage to this particular Catholic shrine. And we, um, we recorded it, uh, because we want to promote, I guess, the idea that we are um, very serious about our dedication to our religion, I guess. I mean, why else would you make a movie? Like, how is this? It's, you know, like when you when you go to the church and it's, you know, you pay a bunch of money to get, you know, the priest to grant you favors and stuff like that. I guess this is like kind of a payoff in a way to the priest. I don't know. Um, I think it's kind of one hand washing the other because everybody, uh, well, not everybody, but 95% of the people in any given Italian town is going to be Catholic. And as long as the church says that you're a decent person, and you're not some uh, corrupt asshole whose daughter fucks people in a sleazy hotel. (laughs) Right. They'll feel better about working for you. And he can't afford to have his... um, This might be like damage control for the scandal. I'm not sure when this pilgrimage took place, but the fact that they're trying to stay on the, the church's good side... Right. It's probably not an accident. And well, remember how earlier the same guy played ball when it came to having leeches sent to the asylum. He kind of gave them moral justification for doing right. it. Right. Exactly. He was kind of like um, counsel. He provided counsel for that decision. Well, I think more than him counseling uh, Brignoli... 
I think it was him establishing what he will say if anybody else asks him about yeah, yeah, it. Yeah. You know what I mean? Right. It's kind of like a dry run for, yeah, she comes from a good family. She's perfectly educated, but these things happen and she needs some help and some compassion and, you know, all that kind of shit. Yeah. Well, and um, again, the you already brought this up a little bit, but the question is, you know, are they glad handing the priest with this film because they're still trying to, um, you know, build up, you know, a positive public opinion in, in, in reaction to the scandal of the photos or are they doing it because they know that as they move forward, they're still going to be kind of corrupt and they just want to continue to make sure that, everybody in their close circle regards them as, you know, morally wholesome so that they can continue to, to go on and do shady deals. Or well, something. I guess the question it's would like be, insurance. are they showing, is this a preview of something that they plan to show publicly later? That's what I got out of it. Yeah. It's like, um, okay. Some sort of public relations film that they made. Right. Um, so the church tells the public that my company or the factory are good, upstanding, moral people that you should support. And we, as employers, tell our employees that the church is the right way to go and that, you, you know, it's, a, it's, it's, uh, and it's a circle jerk, basically. Yeah, yeah. It's all, like a mutually beneficial transaction. Yeah. Also known as a circle jerk, which is a better way to describe it. Uh, <laughs> well, <laughs> one hand washing the other, uh, one hand stroking the other guy. Yeah. Uh, it's, a, it's a daisy chain. There's <laughs> 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 only so many ways you can say the same thing. But, yeah, because I was thinking if they were only showing him, then this might be, okay, we don't want him to have any... Uh, doubts about uh, whether or not he really should support it. So we're going to show him this movie that, yes, obviously we went on a pilgrimage to Lord and we are worth supporting or backing, even if you have your suspicions. Right. I mean, it could be that. Plus, if they're going to show it publicly, then it's a, uh, you know, it's that daisy chain thing. <laughs> I, like, I can't think of anything else so we they start to watch the movie and what's funny about this is <laughs> a whole bunch of a whole bunch of people with brignoli at the helm um kind of all shuffle in from from <laughs> from left to right yeah like romero's zombies yeah they really do look like zombies and they all have their hands and they don't have them in the typical hand motion that, or the hand hand configuration that looks like praying. It's more like they're they're making a pyramid with their hands, right? It's, right. It's not it's not the standard closed hand prayer thing, or what have you. So, so anyway, so they keep they start walking in. <laughs> it's really funny, like the look on the face. The pilgrims walk into the sanctuary. Okay, here they come, and. Uh, Oh yeah, and and by the way, Brignoli. No, I mean uh, Patrolini is doing 
the the monologue. He's doing commentary. Yeah, he's for narrating. Silent, silent film. <laughs> <laughs> it's really funny. So here they come. Just by looking at their faces, it's impossible to understand the spiritual happiness of the workers. And in the beauty, is standing there with that like little pyramid hand thing. And the funniest thing that happens next is they cut to to Lichia and she's got this little smirk like she knows what's coming because she does. Finally, we're here at the sanctuary. Um, And the first to enter, as usual, is our dear chairman. And so I'm still trying to figure out where the splice is like. This doesn't look like a sanctuary, right? So he starts coming to walk into this room where, and, and as soon as they see where he is in the room, he's got this look on his face like, uh-oh, what's happening here? Yeah, he recognizes know the room. But he's still holding his hands up in the pyramid thing to make it look like he's praying, but he's about yeah, and- to, the woman is, like Laura's about to come over there and they start kissing. <laughs> Why has he got his hands up in prayer? And he's got his hand. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe I don't he's get kinky that, that way. It's kind of awesome because they... as he walks into the room, right before <laughs> she walks up to him in the film, he's still walking like a Romero zombie. <laughs> right. He's like, he's, yeah, he's walking sideways into the room with his hands in prayer. And it says something like the, the narrator or the voiceover guy is going, and now we've entered the sanctuary, and first in is going to be our leader. Always and, but, ready for these encounters with faith. <laughs> he walks in, he puts his hands in, and right then they cut to Brignoli, and he's like, uh-oh, because he recognizes yeah. the room. Right. Um, I mean, like, th- that's the thing that confused me the first time I watched it, because he still has that same look. And that same movement and his hands are in the same spot, but he's not in a sanctuary anymore. Right. He's, in, he's in that chick's house or he's in his chalet or whatever it is. And Giovanna starts just immediately laughing her ass off. And that's the best part. Like she's laughing. And, and, and this is all a prank that was played on her, but it was played on them by Licia. But the one who's really reveling in the revelation is Gio- Giovanna, and she just can't stop cracking up. Yeah. Um, and see, that's so one of the endearing things I was talking about earlier. Her right, personality right. is, is You definitely cool. want to hang out with her, yeah. for sure. So while this is going on, also in the background is the sound of a phone ringing. And At exactly the right moment. Ex- ex- exa- I don't know how they timed it so well, but... Um, <laughs> The phone call comes and the servant says, you know, it's for you, sir. And he walks back and picks up the phone and it's Mario. And Mario, despite the fact that he's in the middle of a blackmail negotiation call, has the has has the temperament to be able to sketch he's so a, chill. <laughs> a church and a, and a and a portrait of a woman. While he's doing all this negotiation, did you enjoy the film? He says, Hey, how'd you like the movie? <laughs> <laughs> I just happened to call you right at the moment when you stopped watching it. Yeah. Uh-huh. So, of course, you know, Brignoli thinks, Okay, how much money do you want? And he's like, No, 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 not this time. Instead, um, I want to marry your daughter. And of course, we know that Licia is behind this whole idea. 
Um, but we don't exactly know, you know, what her end game is yet. We just know that she's crazy. She has a gun and she has a vendetta. So, um, there's talk about being crazy and how, you know, um, Brignoli calls Mario crazy and Mario says, yeah, but Leecha is too. We're going to make the perfect couple. Um, and even later on in the movie, we see there's this one scene at the very end where it looks like maybe Brignoli is starting to lose his mind, but it ends up being tape recorders, but right, um, yeah. I'm jumping ahead. So, um, Anyway, I just have to mention that the wallpaper in Mario's house, um, I'm pretty sure my parents had very close to that same wallpaper throughout the 60s, 70s, and maybe even up to the 90s because their house was built during that time period. And my dad was really interested in, you know, um, what do they call that? Uh, Mid-century modern um, decoration. So the wallpaper was like that. It was velvet. You could like you could rub your hand against the wallpaper and it was like fuzzy. It was great. And if you rubbed against um, it with a black shirt, you'd have little fuzzies all over your clothes. Yeah. Right? Yep. Yeah, I remember those. Well, uh, so Mario says, look, I'm going to give you three days to think about it. Come back to my house on Wednesday at 6 o'clock and we'll talk about the negotiations. So um, everyone has left. Brignoli is sitting alone in his drawing room with the piano. The uh, projector screen is still uh, set up. And then we cut to Giovanna, who takes off her fake eyelashes and puts the cream all over her face, only to just wipe it right off again for some reason. Um, I think you're supposed to just rub it in and let it stay on your face. I don't know. Call me that crazy. Is, um, that's cold cream? It's what they put on to take the makeup off. Oh, oh, okay. So she's getting, oh, because she's getting ready for bed. It's like oil of Olay or some shit like that. I don't know. I remember my my grandmother used to work at a cosmetics counter in a department store. And I remember her explaining to my older female cousins how all that shit worked. And I would just hang out because I was bored. There's nothing else to do. (laughs) And, uh. So yeah, that's what she so was Giovanna, doing. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. No, that's the same. That's what she was doing. She's taking off her makeup and okay. You just quick wipe the. It's like either Pond's cold cream or oil of Olay. You, you smear it on and wipe it off, and it takes off the eyeshadow and mascara. Oh, okay. And stuff like that. Yeah. Cool. Well, and we continue to see kind of Giovanna's character develop. She kind of has probably the most identifiable arc of the whole movie because everybody else is just, it's just a shit show. You have no idea what it, what anybody's thinking or what they're doing. But Giovanna has this, this kind of, um, the, the way that her character kind of evolves is, you know, I was against um, Lichia going to the asylum in the first place. And now um, I'm starting to feel like um, my life is is useless and meaningless. And then this whole thing with her finding out that her father is having an affair with um, 
the minister's wife. And now she's, you know, you see she's got, she's got booze, she's drinking booze. And she's starting to get this kind of like attitude, like, hey, I'm, I'm starting to like not care anymore. I'm mm-hmm. starting to lose, lose hope kind of thing. And she feels um, a little bit of guilt for not standing up for right. Rachel before she got sent away. Yeah. Plus, I think all these little hints are red flags, if you ask me, of the attraction that her husband has and the fact that Leecha seems to be manipulating it or uh, manifesting it with her little games. And the, the scene where she's out there on the balcony, she looks down and she sees the grass or she looks down at the lawn and then she kind of freaks out. Yeah, well, she drops the glass. Does she yeah. actually drop the glass all the way down the balcony to the to the ground, or does no, she? No, I think it? she just drops it onto the the terrace floor where okay. she is. But, but then the she first looks couple over times the... I saw this, I was like, "Is there something I'm missing? Does she see something that freaked her out?" But I think that's kind of another call forward. Yeah, I think it was just. Um... Or maybe she was feeling so blue. Maybe it just crossed her mind. Why don't I just jump or something like that? And then she kind of freaked herself out. Yeah. Like if, if you watch the way that they edited that one little sequence, you know, she drops the glass, which makes her look down. But instead of looking down at the glass, she catches a glimpse of how far down it is from where she's standing. And she gets mesmerized for a second and she continues to look down at it. And it that may have been like the inception of the idea of, hey, I should just jump off and kill myself. Yeah. Well, she looks down first and then she drops the glass. Oh, does she? Yeah. I mean, she continues to look down after the glass falls, but it's after she, there's that camera spin, well, not spin, but pan down. Right. Yeah. It kind of, yep. Yep. She looks down, drops the glass, looks down again. Okay. Yeah. We're not really supposed to break it apart that, that well, but you know, just like there's a, there's a part when they're doing the montage of Lichia going into the asylum and they show, I guess a doctor's hand about to give her an injection mm-hmm. and the hand moves in a, like it's got a movement where it looks like it's going to go into the, you know, the, the, um, the location on the arm where the injection site, that's what it is, the injection site. But the, <laughs> the needle actually doesn't do anything. It just moves and huh. you have to like pause it quick enough to see that the needle makes like a stabbing motion, but the needle itself doesn't actually go into the flesh at all. And then they cut away so quickly that you didn't have a chance to notice it. So, Hmm. but anyway, I guess my point is that they edited these things together and didn't expect that someone was going to pause the the film. (laughs) Um, Wait till we see the Blu-ray and can see all the wires they're hanging from. (laughs) (laughs) So Giovanna is still very upset. Um, she feels like there's nothing really worth living for, or at least she doesn't feel like she has much of an identity. She says, you know, the only people that pay any attention to us are the ones that want money from us. And even you and 
Um, there's a there's a song playing, a record playing, and uh, she's starting to get more and more um, impatient with the fact that the the noise is over overwhelming. And she tells uh, Francesco that uh, she was just part of a business deal. Um, you don't really love me, that whole thing. And he's like, you're crazy. If you want to keep talking like a maniac, go ahead. Um, but she's kind of beyond that. She's like, she's not even fighting with him anymore. She's just basically saying, hey, I, I, I'm, I've discovered this. I, I realized what a bad situation we're in. And I, I, we should just give up. We, we should run away. Why, why don't we do this? And he's like, he finally kind of, he finally drops his, his shield and kind of says, you know, you really think it's that easy to do. Um, so you kind of get an idea at this point that he's on the same page as she is. Like he's doing what he has to do, even though he doesn't want to, but it doesn't last for very long. She runs into the other room and smashes the record to pieces. So it'll stop playing. And then we have, um, Leech's seventh prank. Uh, in my list where she does the old, uh, Hey, Francesco, come outside and take a look at my body. Now, um, Francesco is sitting in the bed. Um, he sees the rocks come up. He looks over at his wife who is dead asleep from all the scotch she's drank. And he slowly and carefully gets off the bed and walks over to the window to watch Licia take off her dress as well as her top and bottom, I think? Or is it just top? I can't remember. Um, let's see, I'm watching it right now. There goes the top. He looks over his shoulder. Yep, the wife's still in bed. She starts to put down the... She starts to take down her bottom, but it cuts away before anything actually moves. And then he runs down the stairs and she's gone. One of the things that... Uh, I think is different in modern times compared to these particular times is that women would wear fashionable shoes with a bathing suit. Mm -hmm. And I don't really see that anymore. It's usually like you're either barefoot or you're wearing flip flops or something. Um, but anyway, uh, <coughs> she also strategically always has her hair, um, in front of her shoulders when she doesn't have a top on. Um, I'm sure that was at her own request, but, uh, the point of this scene basically is that, uh, once she takes off almost all of her clothes and turns the light off and then gives Francesco an opportunity to leave the room, run downstairs and come outside. She's long gone. Um, but Francesco has, created enough of a commotion to wake up Giovanna who opens the, or looks out the window to see that he's out there. Um, so just further evidence to her that something is going on. Um, <clears throat> next we have another montage and, uh, it's Licia. She's in town again. She has a bandana wrapped around her head. She has these really cool, um, pink, glasses on and a turtleneck white sweater that is uh, sheer enough to see her bra through. 
<laughs> what I am confused about when it comes to this particular scene is that so I mean let's let's pull this apart. The main thing that we're watching or at least that we're trying to follow is Lichia in town walking around in a store. But while she's walking around in a store, we get all of these different edits and all these different cuts. Um, one of them is the toys that the wind-up toys in the hallway. She mm -hmm. notices them in the window of the store, and then she remembers the toys in the hallway. And you know, you could say, "Well, which happened first? But it doesn't really matter. Um, then we get these edits related to her and Francesco. <clears throat> she's wearing the black outfit. She's wearing the Paisley outfit. Um, she's even wearing the current outfit. She peeps out from behind whatever she's reading. He's at the piano. Um, she continues to walk through the store, but then there's more cuts of her with uh, Francesco. I don't get it. Like, I don't know what we're supposed to take away from this. I don't either. And okay. So we're getting a montage, I guess of flashbacks when just little subtle ways that she would uh, flirt with Francesco. Right. And it seems like she's shopping for an outfit that because the next time we see her, she's in Patrolini's car. Correct. Maybe her mindset is she's thinking about seducing somebody or sexually manipulating somebody. Yeah. And that's what's on her mind as she's trying to pick out an outfit. So she thinks about, I don't know, times that she was manipulating Francesco instead. Right. Because we do see her in an outfit pretty soon that we haven't seen before. I assume she just bought it at that store for the purpose of doing what she's about to do with right. Adrolini. That's what I thought, too. Absolutely. But um, there's even a, a quick cut of Giovanna walking, holding the carnations and the roses. It's only on screen for half a second. Um. And then you start saying things like, well, did they just throw a bunch of scenes in there just to throw scenes in? Or was that supposed to be there? So, uh, you know. Yeah, I don't know. Part of me wants to say they're just using ec uh, excerpts from the cutting room floor to pad this thing out. Yeah. But part of me hopes that he was trying to say something. Like, maybe... That shot of Giovanna with the flowers would reflect some kind of guilt that Lita felt yeah. for what she was doing. Right. But who knows? You'd like to believe that. Yeah. You'd like to believe that the filmmakers were intelligent as we are. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. I thought of something, but it, it left. So, uh -oh. um, in the next scene, Licia um, gets into the car with Paterlini, of all people. Um, and 
she asks him, if I was drowning, would you come save me? And he says, of course I would, but I can't swim. And they laugh. Um, and then she says, it's time. I, I want to get out of here. I don't want to be here. And so they drive away. And while they're driving away, they talk about how, you know, how come I was the only person at the party that you didn't flirt with or whoever, whatever the word was. And, um, they start talking about his reputation and how for him, the women are the antidote to boredom. Um, and she says, uh, I have a favor to ask. And he says, okay. And she says, would you take me to my father's chalet? Which I think at this point we've seen before, like you, like you mentioned where, uh, Brignoli and, um, Laura get together and then we see them again at the, in the film too. Um, I don't, unless you're paying very close attention to the subtitles, I don't think you would have paid any attention to the fact that this was a different location than the home, the regular home where they're staying. But, um, Licia comes in and immediately starts trying to seduce, uh, Patrolini. And she has this crazy, like palm, palm, top dress on <laughs> yeah. i guess they're like wheels or circles or yeah, like, it's like, like she's wearing a, a black sheer t-shirt and she's using two berets as a bra right <laughs> and there's a look it's you like don't the see anymore it's like the bras on top of the shirt but there's no straps it's just right. like a floating bra uh, and he's staring at her the same way I was staring at the dress. Like, what the hell is that? <laughs> so as they start to get get uh, jiggy with it, mm-hmm. um, we see that Mario is there. And uh, we soon realize that this is a setup. Mario comes in and confronts Petrolini. Um, and says, uh, you know, Hey, I'm going to go to the cops and you'll be accused of rape, uh, unless you tell us what we want. And there's a really cool scene towards the end of this uh, segment or or sequence at the end of the scene where they just keep smacking him in the face (laughs) and Mario says, you're going to tell us. And he's like, I'm not going to, you will, you won't, I will, you won't. And back and forth and back and forth. Yeah. That was awesome. I want to, I want to make a gif of that. (laughs) Yeah. definitely. He's just good bitch slap. And it's not even really hard. It's such a pussy bitch slap, which makes it even more insulting. You know, it's like the guy's not really trying to hurt you. He's just dominating you. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So what they're trying to get out of him is um, information about the land that uh, Brignoli is buying and that Petrolini is buying on his behalf. I'm watching the scene now. No, I won't. And he just keeps smacking him back and forth. It's pretty funny. So, uh, we don't see um, Patrolini giving the information to, to Mario, but we know that he does. The next scene, we have another montage where a whole bunch of hippies are hanging out and they're painting 
and they're setting up signs. <clears throat> we don't really know what they are, but everybody that looks at them, you know, they laugh. Um, they're all having a great old hippie time painting and dancing and setting up signs. And eventually after the, mon you know, the, the, the end of the montage is I think Mario driving on a tractor with a sign on the back of it. And I'm glad that you're on the podcast for many, many reasons, but in this specific reason, it's because I think a lot of the things that they painted on the screen, um, or I'm sorry, that they painted on these signs <coughs> have some slang to them and whatever it showed in the subtitles, I don't really know if it was a direct translation. So, um, and sometimes they didn't even show what it said. So, okay. What does the, the first one on the back of the Jeep says, um, V Vistano. Oh, on the back of a tractor. Oh, the tractor. I'm sorry. Vistano Trufando. They are, uh, okay. Trufa means fraud. Okay. So okay. if you commit a crime, it's Trufo Dano alla Stato, which means, uh, fraud at the expense of the state. Uh, okay. So Trufando is, frauding so it means they are frauding you which okay, means they scamming are scamming you yeah yeah mm -hmm. it says jipping in the yeah, subtitles well that's i i mean that's i knew more what english yeah yeah uh, i knew what it meant i just didn't know if that was really the right translation and then in the next scene it says don't sell on the right but this other one that says brignoli speculator i don't know i mean yeah i think I that's just uh face value he's a speculator he's buying your land low because he knows or he expects that soon it's going to double he's going to sell high or yeah it's going to yeah and then there's this other scene which i think i translated that said oh no that's the same one so they start okay, intercutting um but they showed the double sign out in the middle of the field. Yeah, let's see if did I and get this right? Let me see. Let me see if I translated this right. Patrolini straw man, who is behind him, and then Patrolini works for Brignoli. Bruno, Brignoli, who do you work for? Okay, wait. <laughs> What the fuck? P-A-Q-L-I-A. Okay, non vendete bru brignoli speculatore, right? Got it. Okay. And then in the field where there's multiple signs, there's non vendete, which means don't sell. Seems past that to one that says Sono dei ladri, rubano al voi e al popolo. Sono dei ladri, which means they are thieves. Rubano al voi e al popolo, they are robbing from you and the people. Under that, Kice dietro Brignoli, who is behind Brignoli. L'onorevole, which means the, the honorable, which I guess is the... Uh, 
the minister. Okay. And then it cuts shit. Ah, the fucking editing in this movie. <laughs> it's, it's crazy, man. <clears throat> I mean, it's so fast, I don't have time to pause on it to read. Okay, whoa, shit. Motherfucker. <laughs> Okay, that's the one I just read. Okay, now. These are the same ones. Right. We sound as we found. Speculatory. Yeah, okay, we've already seen that. Ladri, thieves. Yeah, okay, these are, yeah, they're just repeating. Now. There's one at the end. Oh, oh, ah, shit. Ah. Right before Laura comes running out. Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. Uh, Patrolini, Uomo di Paglia, Chi sta dietro di lui? Uh, Patrolini, Man of Straw, or Straw right. Man. Uh, who is behind him? Okay. Patrolini, Lavora per Brignoli. Patrolini works for Brignoli. Brignoli per chi lavora? Brignoli works for who? Right. Okay. That's that's what I got too. Okay, but that's that was Google. I didn't trust it, so yeah, yeah it's not one hundred percent. So suffice it to say that uh, Licia and her little crew, who all of a sudden seem to be happy, fraternizing with her again. I don't know if this is the same group of people that wouldn't even like talk to her and gave her the stink eye when she was in town, and now they're all painting signs for her. I don't know. Well, the, um, the townspeople that were giving her the cold shoulder earlier didn't look too hippy-dippy. This looks like she's found uh, a new group. Somebody who would be more uh, anti-corruption and government. and You know, uh, all that power to the people, hippie type stuff. It's right. Like they, maybe, this is Mario's, maybe this is Mario's crew, you know. Yeah, he's a creative type, so... He's probably been to some drum circles with these people. <laughs> yes, for sure. Uh, well, I have too. I'm, I'm not talking too much shit. Yeah. <laughs> um. So after we see that montage of all the signs, um, we get a scene with Laura and Brignoli. Um, and apparently enough's enough at this point between the daughter in the mental institution for being a whore and the affair between the minister's wife and Brignoli in front of the priest and all the signs all over the place that say that uh, Brignoli is a thief and so on and so forth. There is too much pressure for the government to keep the minister involved and so they cut him loose, and she blames Brignoli because, of course, she should. It's all his fault, pretty much. Yeah. Um, and as a result, all of the money that they put into buying those pieces of land is for naught because they're not going to be able to vote for this motorway. Now, you know, you could argue that, hey, maybe the motorway is a good idea anyway, and it is going to come through, but they didn't talk about that. They didn't say, they just figured that since the minister is out of the government, there's no way that this plan for the motorway is going to happen. 
So, <clears throat> well, they didn't get the quick turnaround that they were expecting oops, from their plan, you know. But still, uh, real estate rarely goes down in value. And he's acting like he just threw this money into a pile and set it on fire. Right. You still own all that land. If worse comes to worse, do what most normal people that invest in real estate do, which is buy it and sit on it or rent it or, I don't know, whatever the right. Italian equivalent of sharecropping is. Well, and, and, and you know, sell I it don't, later. The other question is was it really an illegal activity to go buying the land just because you got an insider tip that the price of the land might go up? Um, I don't know. I mean, at this particular time in history, I don't think there was any sort of regulation, you know, related to something like that. But well, um, over here, who knows? I get this. I get the sense that Brignoli, he doesn't care so much that this, like, this isn't devastating him. It's like, okay, I took a, I took a big loss on this, but you know, I still got all my other stuff going on. But meanwhile, Laura takes it as kind of a personal defeat because. You know, she's been humiliated because the priest and most of the important people know that she's having sex with this guy. Um, and now that he didn't get into the government, you know, it, he may leave her um, and she has a bad reputation. So I think she's taking it a lot harder than he is simply because she sees it as more than just a, a, a financial loss. She sees yeah. it as like you know, a major loss in her life. And I don't yeah, think she had her eggs in two baskets and they're both falling apart. Right. She thought she was going to play the, the politician against the, the industrialist and come out on top. And because of one, the other's gotten sullied and now it's all falling to shit. Along with her reputation, personally. So, yeah, they're all in a tight spot. Yeah. And that's kind of like the the very kind of doom and gloom kind of feeling that you get from the scene where um, towards the end, they just are kind of staring off in front of them, talking and saying, you know, this is what we're going to have to do to deal with this. And, um Laura says um, it's as though someone was trying to destroy us, but I don't know who it could be. <laughs> and then, <laughs> and then um, Brignoli says, yeah, I don't know. And I don't want to know. And he puts his hand on her shoulder. And I don't know if he's saying, I don't know. And I don't want to know uh, just, for her benefit or if he really doesn't know and he doesn't want to know. Um, Cause I kind of got the idea that he knows it's Lichia, but yeah, I think he does too. But the first time I saw this, I thought, how the hell can you not know? But I remembered the second time I'm watching this from my perspective, which is kind of alongside Lichia herself. Right. Somebody like him probably has no idea for real because he has a shit ton of enemies all over the place. Yeah. They're not just enemies, but rivals. I mean, it could be anybody. Yeah. 
but I think what you said is correct. I think he does have an idea that it might be Leecha, and he's just trying not to let on or, you know, point the finger at her to his girlfriend or lover. Right. Whatever. So. Well, in the next scene, they're back at the main house. Leech is on the swing, and they're talking about the marriage to Mario. And um, you have to remember, I guess, that he doesn't want this film to get out of him and um, the minister's wife. So he's trying everything to make that not happen. And one of the things that he has to do is he has to give a blessing for her to marry Mario. And in this particular scene, they're talking about it. And he basically says, you know, um, despite the the fight, despite the fact that she says, yeah, he's then a little blackmail every, every now and then, um, Brignoli comes back with, you know, I think that he'll straighten out once he becomes part of the family. <laughs> so, well, um, there's a slight discrepancy. Well, not really a discrepancy, but shades of meaning difference between the subtitles and what was actually said. Okay. He says, uh, let me see, I got it right here. A little blackmail now and then, blah, blah, blah. He says... Convinced that once integrated, okay, he says into a close knit real family like ours. But the actual quote is he says the word sana, which it sounds a lot like sanity or sane. Okay. But in Italian, it means more like sanitation, which is closer to healthy. So he's saying once he's in a healthy, real or true family like ours which is ironic because everybody in this family is fucked in the head not just right. Leecha, right exactly so, <laughs> but uh but i like the double meaning in sana because like you know, like i said in english it sounds like sane and if i was doing the subtitle close knit the word sana has jack shit to do with close knit that's completely out of the blue. They could have picked either the word healthy or sane. And I think if they'd said sane, that might have been a little too on the nose. But they still could have said right. healthy, which kind right. of implies the same thing. Well, so. sane, the problem with sane is that, you know, there's all this discussion throughout the movie of who's sane and who isn't. You know? Right. Yeah. Okay. But they could have said healthy, and that would kind of imply... Uh, the mental as well as physical or just uh, how much everybody loves each other and gets along because in <laughs> any way you slice it, it's all bullshit. <laughs> yeah. Right. And well, like you said before, it's it, the irony is that he's describing a, a family that isn't really accurate. Yeah. If you're talking about his family, but um, so Giovanna comes down the steps. I think um, Matt would have loved her yellow scarf. And um, you can tell that she is determined now. She is, she has made up her mind about the way that she feels about the family. Um, and she doesn't mince words anymore. It doesn't look like she has very much that she can do about it. Um, 
she doesn't want to leave her husband. She wants to, or her fiance, she wants to get married, but he's very interested in staying with the family and all the stuff going on with Licia and Brignoli and the business and everything else. It's just driving her to the point where she's just like, uh, this is ridiculous. Um, and she tells Licia, why don't you just leave? Don't you realize that the people that you're trying to kill are already dead? Um, and the scene ends pretty abruptly with her just kind of accusing everybody of, of being hypocrites and, and the fact that, you know, the family is kind of really just fake and, and dead, it's full of dead people. And then they cut right to, uh, Licia and Mario having sex in Mario's place. And I think this is the first time that we actually see the frontal nudity of the of Licia's character or the actress that plays Licia, um, but only for a split second, and then we get back to. And that's the overhead shot above the bed. No, there's a there's a part in the beginning of the close ups where um, uh, it's it's right when the scene starts when oh, yeah. Mario is kind of on top of. Lichia, and you can see, yeah, her bare okay. breasts. But I mean, it, we needed that for the Jalo score, so I'm not trying to be like a creep, you know. Yeah, that I'm looking we for are, these types of things. It's purely academic. This is so. scientific entry. <laughs> um, so they have sex, and um, at one point, Mario says, "You know, why did you want to make love?" And she says, um, it's the first time since I came home and the last time was with you. And I don't really know that that's an answer. Um, except like, Hey, I was horny. So that's a good answer. And then she says, well, we're going to be married. Remember? And, uh, he's like, I I can't believe it. I don't understand how you would have accepted. Cause again, Mario is still operating under this idea that she's, trying like she doesn't really love him she pointed a gun at him and said do what i want and i need you alive but i guess because he loves her or i think he does um he goes along with it so well that's something that confused me because when after the the film thing in front of the priest when the phone rings he doesn't ask for money he immediately says i just want to marry your daughter i want to be your son-in-law right and that led me to think that this was part of the scam that they both had going on. But now that you mention it, he does seem kind of surprised. Like, why would you have accepted? Uh, so he was, what, just rolling the dice, hoping that she, that uh, Brignoli would be able to convince her to marry him? I guess. I mean, it's just, this is another, you know plot hole um well, well maybe not because if that's the case maybe he really does love her but it's kind of hard to believe because he did kind of sell her down the river earlier well you know you have to make assumptions when you watch this movie about what are the characters motivations and it's not clear what they are especially for mario um hmm. you know maybe he was thinking like francesco 
where, yeah, I could get a one-time payout now, but if I hitch my wagon <laughs> right. to, uh, okay, that's doesn't end. No, it, no. I mean, it, like that's a legitimate, that's a legitimate. But if I become part of a family, that's more of a long-term thing. Right. He's, Maybe he's he was just rolling life. the dice. Yeah. But, and that's a legitimate um, hypothesis. But again, you have to remember that the whole reason why the film was made and the whole reason why he called Brignoli and said, I want to marry your daughter is because Licia told him to do that stuff. So like who's playing who, you know, is he doing this because he feels threatened by Licia or is he doing it? Cause he wants to, um, because he's just as crazy as she is and they belong together. Like, you know, you don't really know. Well, now I wonder if she even knew that he was going to blackmail with the film. Maybe she got him to shoot the film just because her objective was to humiliate and expose her dad. And then maybe he just tacked on the blackmail thing on his own. Right. Well, I mean, yeah. I mean, she knew he already was a blackmailer. Yeah. I mean, she says it a couple of times. Yeah. It's it's weird. Well, at any rate, they decide that they're going to celebrate the fact that they're getting married soon. So Licia goes over and uh, pours a couple of glasses of champagne and then takes out her compact. And there is a pill of some sort that easily dissolves into uh, Mario's drink. And again, they keep showing and framing a lot of shots with this like um, room divider thing that we talked about before. Um, So she hands uh, Mario the drink and they say cheers and he drinks it all down in one gulp. And I actually counted from the minute that he drinks the drink <laughs> to the point where he passes out completely is 30 seconds. Wow. Um, which, it's of course, st- it has to be because we can't. <laughs> the, the irony is throughout this whole goddamn movie, they did everything they could to either push the timeline time. forward <laughs> fast, too fast, or bring it back too fast. But they couldn't, you know, edit out the amount of real time it would take for the drug to take effect. So they just said, yeah. hey, look, you know, you're going to be affected by it in 30 seconds. And so, she's, she sets a new land speed record for roofing <laughs> somebody. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, but uh, I, I like how she, she's using, notice how she, she plucks his chest hair. Yeah. And the first time he's like, Oh, stop it. Which first of all, that's a totally fake fucking reaction. I mean, I'm a pretty hairy guy. Yeah, <laughs> you pluck my one of my chest hairs out. I don't care how hot you are. You're, <laughs> that's not happening twice. <laughs> but the second time she does it and he doesn't react, I realized, oh, that's how she's testing if he's out yet or not. Yeah, 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 exactly. She wants to make sure that he's completely. Yeah. Out. So cool. So now. I want to bring this next part up because I don't know if you noticed it. I don't know if anybody in our audience noticed it because I keep forgetting that we're actually um, going to turn this discussion to something that people might actually listen to. The montage begins where she's going to set up the gun with the fishing wire and rig it to the door so that when the door opens, the shotgun shoots perfectly into Mario's head and right in his forehead. 
While she's doing this, they play a song. first time I watched this movie, I had fallen asleep. And it was when this song started that I woke up from the sound of the song, you know, being loud. Now, when I hear this song, it sounds like a song called Love Potion Number Nine. Mm -hmm. And this sounds exactly like that song without words being sung. I told her that I was a fuck with chicks. I don't know if you noticed the same thing or if I'm just the only person who knows that song. Well, I know I've heard that song before. I can't quite you have to go back how it goes. You'll have to go back and listen to it and, and, and do them back to back. Because not only is it the same chord changes, which as we know from recent history with uh, that, that guy who ripped off Marvin Gaye's song from England, what's his name? Um, Ed Sheeran. Yeah, yeah. So Ed Sheeran was, was given uh, a pass on the fact that he made a song that sounds like um, Let's Get It On. Because you can't, quote unquote, you can't copyright chord changes. So if you listen to this scene, you'll hear the chord changes for Love Potion number nine. But then the instrumental organ comes in or because this is an instrumental, the organ comes in and plays the melody. And it's the same melody as the song. Um, Hmm. Right after this, you know, and again, we still see a lot of these uses of the the camera shooting through the like actually like literally shooting through that wall um right after this brignoli shows up at mario's place because he was told to um on wednesday at what was it 6 p.m i think something like that but but who told him mario told him on the phone he said i'll come to my house on wednesday at six o'clock. Oh, right. Okay. With my answer. So, and so, she knew that like, uh, like Lichia knew that her father was coming. That's why she set this whole thing up. Like she knew ahead of time that he was going to be there. Right. So he shows up and the music is playing so loud that he figures Mario is not going to hear him at the door. So he goes ahead and opens the door on his own, which triggers the gun, which shoots Mario directly in the head. And uh, when he walks in, Mario's already dead. Um, and he stands there for a minute and realizes what happened. He sees the gun and um, he uses a lighter to burn off the fishing wire and takes the gun with him. Um, and that's the end of that scene. We're getting close to the end here. Yeah, it's ramping up now. 
So now Mario is dead. Um, and uh, Lara is considered ruined. Um, the politician is ruined. And her sister Giovanna is kind of on the brink of insanity or on the brink of suicide. So we just have um, Francesco and Brignoli himself to deal with. As far as this, if if you want to see this as as a as a revenge movie, which you could um, make that case. So uh, let's see. Francesco is sitting outside in his black and pink robe, um, just kind of <laughs> chilling out. But uh, Licia is, you know, giving him signals from her room. So he comes up and he goes into the room. Oh, but he walks past his own bedroom and we see that Giovanna's laying there with her eyes open. Right, right. He To, to him, um, she appears to be asleep, but you are now seeing that she's really not asleep. So she's awake. Okay. So um, he turns around and walks back to Licia's room and I guess he... Um, just decides to get to it. This is when I put um, YouTube on double speed. Because this is a really slow moment. <clears throat> so he comes in, she's sleeping. He sits all over top, you know, he sits on her bed. He's over top of her. He starts going at her and she wakes up and she's like, no, I don't want to do this. What are you doing? Not now. Um, are you crazy? And, uh, Giovanna starts to hear this and she knows what's going on. And she goes over to the door, the door that, um, was rigged with the fishing line, which I think is why she can't open it. Right. I think she just has it closed with the key from the other side. Oh, okay. Because the, like the door handle itself moves back and forth, but she just can't open the door. So, um, once Licia sees that, Giovanna is trying to get in. She changes her disposition from fighting him off to accepting his advances. Um, And then they start kissing. And then the next thing you know, uh, Giovanna goes in the other door and catches them. Um, And she's distraught. She has this look. I think she's, I think she portrayed this character very well. Like she was going through a lot of emotions at the same time when this was happening. She acts her ass off right here. Yeah. Yeah. Because at first she's upset. She's on the verge of tears. And then she starts laughing. And then she starts crying again. Wow. Yeah. And then the next thing you know, she decides, um, I can't take it anymore. I'm going to jump. And uh, she jumps off. And we have a death by falling point. For ding. the ding ding for the Jalo score. Um, now, there's only a couple of scenes left in the movie. We see Brignoli. He's disheveled. You know, his he's still got a business shirt on or a, a suit shirt on, but it's unbuttoned and his hair is all messed up. And it looks to me like they filmed this wanting you to think that it is morning. It is dawn. People have been up all night. But there's a scene... Right after Brignoli gets off the phone, 
where Francesco is walking around smoking a cigarette in the factory with this shirt on. It's a white shirt with the collar propped up. And it looks a lot brighter and different time of day. And it's only on screen for a couple of seconds. Um, and I don't know what to make of that. It really is one of the more confusing cutaways. Yeah, because you see through the skylights or the windows at the factory that it looks like mid at, mid morning at least, right? Or at the right. earliest, but it's just cut from Brignoli sitting at his desk where you see the kind of medium to dark blue sky behind him, like the sun is just coming up. Right. And as I watched this, I said, well, maybe that's a day for night shot, but it really isn't because the next scene after that is Francesco comes out with his, um, with his bags and his coat and he's leaving. Now he's not wearing the same clothes he was wearing in that cutaway. So I don't know what the fuck, (laughs) you know what I mean? Like again, it's, is it David Lynch or is it, Oh, we're just going to throw this in here because we got to make, you know, the one hour and 28 minute, you know, runtime cutoff so that we can be considered a feature. Yeah, but you could have found eight seconds anywhere else rather than <laughs> yeah, stick a <laughs> shit sandwich in the middle of the. <laughs> well, I mean, the, maybe the only thing that I can uh, the only. Th- OK, go ahead. Because if it was done in a way that made sense, it could be Francesco saying, oh, my God, I've been a piece of shit. Now my wife is dead and. Oh, this, you know, maybe he had a come to Jesus moment or something and decided, fuck all this. And him walking around the factory was like, am I really going to give this up? Because, you know, his retirement plan was being Brignoli's son-in-law. But see. But the way they did it with the different skies and natural light and wardrobe. And different outfits, right. Yeah. Kind of shoots that in the foot. But so what I'm trying to piece together from this, if I was trying to make an argument for it being meaningful, is that we're now going to show you that somebody else has been destroyed. Besides the fact that Giovanna is dead, um, Francesco is dead, too. And we're going to give you a little tiny flashback to remind you of what Francesco stands to lose from this, because like now there he is in the factory. It's a different scene altogether. It's like something that happened in the past. It's right. a way of, of, of visually telling the story of what his character is about. I guess that's the only thing I can think of. Cause then they show him leaving like, okay, he's, you know, his wife is, his fiance is dead. He has no connection to the family anymore. What is he going to do? He's got to leave. That's what I would do if I was him. Um, yeah. So he and I wonder, only... does he even know that uh, that Mario's dead? Uh, does he even know who Mario is? Oh shit, that's right. Yeah, I don't, I don't think don't he ever met. Ever met? No, because I was thinking for a second. Oh shit, Giovanna's dead. What am I going to do now? Well, I definitely get a boner with. <laughs> right. I'll just switch over. I'll just stick around and <laughs> we can console each other over the loss of her sister. And the the next question I have is do you think that um that Brignoli knows why she jumped? 
Do you think he has yeah, any because, idea? Because she about- was acting pretty um, abnormal in the previous scene where where Lichia is sitting on the swing. You know, I think if he had noticed anything about what she was saying and her behavior, he probably understands what happened. Yeah, but I mean, does Brignoli know that Giovanna caught Francesco in Leech's bed? Oh, like um, no. And, you know, it, the funny part is when the scene right after she jumps, the next scene is him talking to somebody about how, yeah, of course this was an accident. Like he's once again trying to kind of like um, smooth things over, save face. Save face, yeah. Right. Um, but we don't know who he's talking to because we don't hear the person on the other end. But yeah, maybe yeah, it was Laura. I, I don't Laura. know. I don't, I don't know if he figured that part out. But he and and uh, and Francesco, like they exchange glances um, or they exchange looks. But then, you know, Francesco gets in the car and drives away. And um, the only person that's left for Licia to ruin is um, her father. Everyone else is gone or dead. And um, now we have this sequence where we hear, we hear a voiceover of the conversation, the one-sided conversation. Or no, maybe it's not one-sided because yeah, yeah. There's you can hear Mario's voice too. I think, um, in this voiceover, and for the first time we see uh, Brignoli kind of as a beaten man. He's wearing a robe. You know, he's not in his suit anymore. He doesn't look like he's trying to, you know, um, be a, a tycoon. Instead, he's, you know, kind of just really disheveled and out of it. But he eventually finds a tape recorder where these voiceovers are coming from, which I thought was kind of cool because I thought they were going to try to make it seem like, Hey, he's going crazy now too. Um, well, I think that was kind of what they were trying to go for because maybe by this point he is right. I mean, enough pressure and enough things have happened to him. Yeah. Yeah. But you, what I like about it is, Oh, go ahead. No, no. What you like about it. The the audio that he hears of that phone call is reverbed and looped, and it's like uh, it's like Leecha must have had a uh, I don't know a laptop loaded with Reaper or something <laughs> in the background, yeah. right? Garage Band, yeah. But then when he finds it, it's in it's kind of half in the body of the grand piano. So I thought, oh, that's where the reverb's coming from. But he takes it out of there, and the reverb it's, is still going. Right. <laughs> and I thought, oh, movie, you fucked up. You should have. They cut were the trying to be clever, and they weren't really. He turns it off, and it's still making. You still hear it because she's right outside. She's got another one, right? Yeah, and apparently those two tape decks are connected with Bluetooth. Or something. <laughs> but you, you, you had the same conclusion I had, which was. Um, oh, okay. Now it explains why the sound is echoing through the house because they put it next to the strings of the piano, right. which would reverb, which would reverberate throughout the house. But yes, he pulls the he pulls the tape recorder out and turns it off, and you still hear the same effect. Yeah. Um, 
And another cool touch is on that piano, the shot where he's standing near the fireplace and he turns around looking towards the piano, you see a, a portrait of Leecha on the piano, but there isn't one of anybody else. Oh, okay. Namely, uh, Jovan. Right. Yeah. Well, and it's really weird that the only picture that we've ever seen of, of Giovanna is this one where she's like reaching out to like grab something. Like, why would anyone take a picture of that? You know, I don't know if you ever, if you saw that it was earlier in the film, but, um, I'm blanking on it. Okay. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, so the part that I think is my favorite kind of funny part of the film, cause this, this film, I guess it, it had its moments where I guess it was supposed to be or trying to be comical. But for the most part, this was, um, uh, we get into the end. Once we get past the last two scenes, we can talk about, you know, overall feeling of it. I'm going to put the playback speed back to normal now. Um, so <laughs> my favorite part is, And they must have created, I, I don't know if this was, was planned and orchestrated, but um, they have this wide shot of the pool in the foreground and the residency in the background. And Leach is standing on the grass with another tape recorder. <laughs> Brignoli comes out from the, the inside of the house, runs out, grabs the tape recorder, and um, smashes it. And then... Slaps Lichia right in the face. <clears throat> but what is really funny about this is if you watch, <laughs> the the servant guy is just kind of emerging from wherever he emerges from with, I guess, a platter of something or other. It's like, oh, here, my people are out here. I must bring them something. Right. And the version I have, uh, which is a DVD copy, you could see the details a little bit better. But as soon as she punch, as soon as he punches Leechia in the face or slaps her, he gets this like very, um, not completely detectable. But if you watch it, he has this reaction like, "Oh my god!" And then he walks in the other direction. Yeah, his his arms kind of raise a little bit. Yeah, and he turns the opposite direction and walks off. <laughs> The first time I saw that, I thought, you know, I thought that is such a weird thing because it's not like we saw a setup where the butler down the hall is reacting to this loud reverbed. What is that sound coming from the piano room? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I thought maybe it's an instance where the actor just by accident walked into the shot and then decide, you know, every now and then you <laughs> see that in movies yeah, right. that aren't so carefully made. But then the second time I watched it, I was like, that is perfect. And yeah. I realized that that can only come after about 51 years of filmmaking experience. And this guy's a genius. <laughs> and that's why I gave him the honorable mention. And that, yeah, that's definitely like my, the, the thing that made me laugh out loud the most yeah. on this whole thing. So we finally get to the final scene and for giallo people this is kind of the equivalent of the explanation scene or the final revelation um although when you try to compare this to the jolly that come after bird it's really hard because this has so many different elements in it 
that that qualify it as a giallo and at the same time kind of detract from the standard form. But basically, Licia confesses that, um, you know, I know you killed Mario. I And he says, yes, but I took the gun. And she goes, yeah, but I took it back. Um, and I'm... I'm going to basically hold on to this because at any moment, you know, I can go to the police with this gun and I can um, tell them what you did and you'll be arrested and you'll go to jail. And so you're going to have to live here now and be trapped um, in this world. And what you start to realize as she's explaining all this is that Really, what it comes down to is that she wanted her dad to love her. Like, that's all she really wanted, which is really deep for this movie. As ridiculously stupid as this movie is, it gets really deep at the end. Like, okay, you sent me away to save face and I I had to suffer for the family and... I don't care about the money. I just wanted my dad to pay some attention to me. And so when she gets back from the asylum, she does all these things to get her dad to pay attention to her and it doesn't work. Um, And so I guess she decides because again, is she crazy or not by getting rid of everybody else in the family, there's nobody left for him to spend any time with, but her. So that's, the only way that she can get what she wants. So she says, um, he says something like, so what you want is just to see me die a little bit, like slowly, a little bit every day. And she goes, yeah, this is the first time we understand each other. (laughs) Right. Um, You know, you have to live in fear um, for the rest of your life. And you're going to be alone if that happens. You'll be alone forever. And the only reason why I won't do that is because the only person you have left is me. And I want, you know, and that's what I always wanted. Like, it's really, it's really deep. (laughs) It took me by surprise. (laughs) It's pretty uh, heartstring pulley and Mm -hmm. almost tear jerky. But... And plus, it's kind of out of the blue because, you know, frankly, by the end, I thought she would just cackle maniacally and, you know, kind of skip down the hall. La, la, right. la, well, and that's you. how that's how she started. Like in the very yeah. beginning of that scene, she started with the vindictive cackling kind of, you know, attitude. Yeah. But she says you'll be all alone, so much alone that you'll wish yourself dead rather than alive. So much alone that you'll want me to be near you. And she starts bawling right when she says that, which right. was very effective. I mean, yeah, she's she's an actress, too, obviously. Well, and I would like to hear the English language of this simply because I know that if it existed, it would be her own voice. But oh, yeah, I think I'll move. Yeah, that's another thing. I guess I, I knew, but I just hadn't connected you know, put the gear and motor or whatever you call it. <laughs> Uh, this whole time I've been hearing her dubbed voice. Yeah. 
which I don't know, maybe she spoke Italian. I don't know, but uh, yeah, that's something else too. She might the thing, have. Though, I mean, it's really touching. It's very well acted. It's kind of out of the blue, so it catches you off guard. Or it caught me off guard. But it's not really set up from the beginning that right. that was a thing with her. So right. it kind of comes out of left field. Yes. Plot-wise and from what they've shown us so far. Uh, I mean, it's effective. I, mean, I still got a little choky the first time I saw it. But. Well, yeah. And, you know, I don't, I wanted to bring this up after the, we covered the whole film. Um, but I don't want to forget that I want to mention it. <laughs> so I'll okay. bring it up now. <laughs> um, when I was watching this the second time, I really started to think about not only this movie, but how to understand what a real giallo film is. Um, you know, as it, as it pertains to the way that the original filmmakers and the original people that were involved in it back in the day kind of regarded it. And so, you know, people in the modern age or modern day, when they hear Jalo films, they think of, uh, you know, black glove killers and razor blades and, and stalking sequences. And this movie had none of that. So it's like, well, how is it a Jalo? Um, and, you know, you can go back to what I, the, the quote I brought out from Ernesto Castaldi, but you don't even have to do that. You can say, well, <clears throat> in, in regular, like this movie kind of played out like a soap opera almost. It was like one scene to the next to the next. There was no real, I didn't really feel like the, the film itself had a progression. It was like one scene after the next. And, you know, when you're watching a traditional movie, like, I don't know, let's say Lord of the Rings, for example, um, at the very beginning of the very first film, you know, it's established. Frodo has to bring the ring to Mount Doom and, you know, destroy it in the lava. And the rest of the time that we watch the movie, we're watching how that is going to happen. Right. But in a film like this, we watch the whole movie going, we really don't know what these characters are doing. And especially our main character, like what's her real motivation? Like, why is she doing this? What's the mystery? And what makes this a giallo is that we really don't find that out until the end. We, you know, that ultimately all she really wanted was to be close to her dad and to be part of her dad's life. And he did everything in his power to put her at the lowest priority. So it's almost as if in this particular movie, the, the mystery is, or, you know, in traditional giallo, uh, or I'm not traditional, but in the classic giallo film that occurs after Bird with the Crystal Plumage comes out, the the mystery is that there's a killer and we don't know who it is. And so we're trying to figure out who this person is. But um, in this movie, it's like, I feel like the, the, the mysterious person is the mystery itself. The person that we're trying to figure out, oh, who is it? It's like what's what's the reason what's the meaning what's the motivation that's the part of the mystery that kind of makes this a giallo to for me so uh that's how i thought about it the last time i watched it and i'd had a lot to drink so <laughs> <laughs> that may have so been so the mystery is 
what's her motivation? I think it's like, you know, this whole time we're watching her do these pranks and we don't know if she's doing them because she's regressing to childhood and this is, she thinks that this is all innocent or is she really vindictive and diabolical and wants to get mm-hmm. revenge. And we find out at the end of the scene that, you know, it's really about she was doing whatever she thought was normal to her in order to put herself in a position where she could get her father's affection and attention. Yeah. Okay. I don't know. Well, too I, far out? Maybe too far out. Well, that could work. I mean, if you have to have a mystery to call it a jollo, which I kind of think you do. Right. <laughs> that's <laughs> There's not much else to, to call a mystery. Well, and, and again, uh-huh. that's why I'm trying to kind of put myself through these paces. Like, okay, let's take a look at it. it's 1969. So we're still in this phase where, you know, all different kinds of attempts at these types of films were being tried and maybe they weren't identified as giallo um, at that particular time period. And it really wasn't until the mystery became very, very popular out of Italy because Argento did one and then people start talking about giallo, but yeah. You know, it's like this film shows up in everybody's list of Jalo films. And so if that many people have all kind of come to the same agreement to come to a consensus that this falls into that category, then what is it about the film that's mysterious? Yeah, it's not like if you call it a Jalo, you're kind of uh, on your own as far as that uh, classification goes. It's in the Howarth book. And I have an Italian book that's kind of the same. Uh, and it's in there, too. Sure. And it's so, in all the lists, all the various lists that people put together. So Yeah. But the honestly, the first time I saw this, I thought, okay, that was a cool movie. I kind of dig it. It's very 60s as shit, which I, you know, I kind of have problems with the music <laughs> and the dancing and stuff. But I, I enjoyed it. But I thought, there's no fucking way this is a Jalo. Right. And, uh, you know, I would, I would have called it a psychological thriller. Right. Or, um, a psychological drama. Or uh, maybe it's, maybe all those pranks that you've been enumerating throughout this (laughs) episode. Right. Maybe those would count as almost kills. Because in a now, in a jalo, if there are two people in a swimming pool and they get electrocuted and they actually fucking die, and you don't know who did it, that's very jalo. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> if somebody slips some asshole a roofie and he passes out on his bed, and then they rig up this gun so it shoots him almost perfectly, point you know, right between the eyes when somebody opens a door. And you don't know who it is. That's Jalo as shit. Right. So. But, but I the, can, you know, the, the, the films that were made in the 68 and 69 years, um, I'm thinking specifically about, um, <clears throat> uh, not Black Veil for Lisa, but uh, Sweet Body of Deborah and the Lindsay films specifically paranoia where it's really about these three people 
and they were trying to drive um, the one woman crazy so that she would jump off the roof and kill herself or whatever. But really, it's like, yeah, so uh, the one thing that, that this film has going for it to establish it as a giallo is that we are still in the proto-period, the end of the proto-period. So people are still right. kind of experimenting. But at sa- the other thing is, the thing that's missing from this film, unless you can find it somewhere um, that we haven't really noticed, is that even when you have a giallo that doesn't have a killer being revealed at the end, there is a twist. There is some sort of thing that happens within the last couple of minutes that changes the way that you look at what all happened or what just happened. And, you know, um, with the one that I just, the one that I just referenced that one Lindsay film paranoia, I think, um, the twist was that they thought that she jumped off the roof and killed herself, but she really didn't. And they're going to get caught or something like that. Um, I don't want to spoil it for everybody, but I think that's, I, I th- if I remember correctly, I think that's what happens at the end of that movie. Um, and just like, you know, um, even going back to Le Diabolique, where there's a twist at the end, like this one, does it have a twist? Because that would really... Um, help to solidify it as, you know, something that belongs in the Jalo list. Um, but what is the twist? I mean, is there one? I, I can't really think of a twist except the, uh, the emotional breakdown she has at the end about wanting to be close to her father. Right. As opposed to just wanting to get revenge for being thrown under the bus. Yeah, I uh, mean, if you're talking about a straight-up revenge movie, then Brignoli would be killed along with everybody else. And, you know, like if this is an I Spit on Your Grave movie, you know, she goes and kills everybody and then runs off at the end and gets revenge. And but in really, this case, I mean, it's so, called Psych Out for a Murder. There's only one murder in the right, whole film. right. One murder, one suicide, and a few lives probably ruined forever. Sure. But, uh... I think the twist, if there is a twist at all, the twist is that instead of just killing everybody for revenge, she decides that she would rather put, you know, like go on with this charade by mm-hmm. keeping him alive and living there and, and pretending that everything is normal. Like that, that seems to be the only twist. Yeah. And for me to set it up at the end where her big thing was wanting to her dad to want to be near her, they could have planted some seeds earlier on and maybe yes. not jump straight into the scandal the way they did. Maybe give the movie an extra 10 minutes where you can set up a hey dad I'm I'm doing my uh I don't know horseback riding thing down at the polo grounds this weekend. <laughs> no, I can't go. I got to work. <laughs> and oh, you always go to Giovanna's recitals. How come you never come to mine? Because she's my first and she looks like your mom and you look like my uncle. So fuck off, you know, or yeah, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> and that's Plant a good this- point. Like where is the mom? I yeah, I guess I just assume she's dead. Yeah, but she's not around. Uh, 
And yeah, you could even work that in. Yeah. You know? But then like it becomes maybe, like an episode of Silver Spoons or something and, you know, you just... Well, that got kind of heartstringy too <laughs> from time to time. <laughs> I mean, I won't admit that Ricky Schroeder ever made me cry, but... Right, you, you can't. Know, I'm that. sure it has for somebody else. Yeah. Um, They could have said, you know, like... uh. Like one daughter was the father's favorite and the other daughter was the mother's favorite. Well, Leecha was the mother's favorite, but now the mother's gone and I look like the mother. So there's issue. I mean, you know, if you're going to pull this, I want daddy to pay attention to me shit. At least uh, foreshadow it somehow. Right. It, it's... But that's in the writing, and like I said before, I think based on who at least two of the other four credited writers were, this script should have been a lot better. Yeah. And the fact that the star-slash-director-slash-partial writer, who happens to be the brother of the fucking producer, (laughs) I think this movie was his hobby horse, and he just kind of... Stuck his fingers in all the pies for his own. <laughs> and I think that kind of fucked it up. Yeah. You know, I'd be interested to see a copy of the script before he got his hands on it. Yeah, it's a good point because, um, you know, maybe some of that stuff was written in and for one reason or another, it got cut out. And so they could so they could make another montage that didn't make any sense from a timeline perspective. Yeah, well, see, the whole movie, it's an hour 28 and 36, the, the copy I got. Yeah. So it's not even 90 minutes. And really, I mean, like you said, the, the scene at the gas station and some of those, uh, especially the hippie dancing stuff and uh, the hippies putting signs in the, the fields, a lot of that could have been trimmed shorter. Yeah. Not because the film is too long, but because they could have used that space to further develop the backstory or the the emotional landscape of the family a little mm-hmm. better. So that when she says something like that at the end, it's still moving, but it's not the the heartstring pull that you feel at the end isn't uh, obscured by the where the fuck did that come from? Right. Like I felt, maybe. Yeah, but I mean, like if you if you consider the style of the movie, they did a lot of like setting up and making you kind of come to your own conclusions about relationships by, you know, putting these montages together. They didn't really explain it in a lot of detail, so there's like a lot of interpretation. Yeah, that that you can do, but yeah, I like that. I mean, I don't need to be spoon fed everything, but just. To, to drop something at the end that there was no setup for. Right. At, in, at the beginning. So. Yeah, because, I mean, you know, if you go back to the very beginning of the film, she's really not even, she's shown in the beginning as being with her lover and she's not with the rest of the family at the dedication. And then the next thing that happens is they're, the, the next time you see her in the film interacting with the other characters, she's basically arguing, Hey, I don't want to go to the insane asylum. So we don't know anything about her. We never saw any of her 
actions and the way that she related to any of the characters up until that point. And then once she gets back from the asylum, it's kind of like all bets are off because maybe she's crazy. Maybe she isn't. And the guy on the, on the phone call that she taped the, the, the psych doctor who talks to Brignoli, he says something like we were really surprised um, that she didn't fight any of our therapy. She just accepted it all. And it seems like she has um, deep down a very, um, she's very hurt and, uh, you know, feels betrayed or something like that. Um, Fuck. She should. Right. Because, I mean, they were pretty frank about the fact that you caused this scandal, and now the only way we can save face is to to send you to the to the hospital. Yeah. And I don't, it, it seems like from the first that we see her, I mean, like you said, she's not with her family. She's with dude having, you know, cameras shoved up her nostrils and in her ears <laughs> in some sleazy hotel. And... They could have set it up that she was like the black sheep of the family, the rebel who didn't give a shit about her dad's work or the money that she has. She wanted to cut loose and, you know, be part of the swing in sixties, which was a thing that would have been the perfect time in the easiest explanation for why she is the way that she is. And maybe that is the case because, I mean, she does seem to dance and have hippie friends and stuff like that. But they don't, you don't see any establishing of her relationship with the family until after shit hits a fan and they have to throw her under the bus. That's the first time you see them interacting. Right. It's easy to armchair, well, armchair director chair. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Stuff from so many years later. And all that's not to. You you just threw two cliches in the same sentence. The shit hits the fan, throw her under the bus. So yeah, that was cool. Shit hits the bus, throw her under the fan. <laughs> <laughs> Shit on her throw, fan the bus. <laughs> fan the bus. Well, we didn't really cover the last scene, but the last scene is, um, I think it was well done. Um, there's no dialogue at all. It's just Licia and Brignoli sitting at dinner. The butler is bringing them various courses of food for the meal. There's lots of cuts um, where, you know, we see Brignoli looking at his daughter and she looking back and back and forth and back and forth. Uh, They don't say anything. They don't smile at all. And then um, the butler brings over the cheese plate and she (laughs) grabs an entire block of cheese, throws it on her plate in a big lump and then just starts playing with it and eating it from her finger and from her fork. And, um, you know, I guess this is her trying to be playful, trying to be childlike, trying to be, you know, a little bit uh, mischievous just to remind yeah. us that, you know, um, you know, she was, really having fun while this was happening, while she was doing all these things. At least it looked like she was. Right. So, and then the camera zooms out and um, we're back to love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself and kill them. As yourself. Kill them as yourself. (laughs) (laughs) A really strange movie. And it makes me wonder 
what type of drugs the people that are in our Facebook group are on that they voted for this one more than anything else? Or did they just want to, maybe they thought it, this would be torture for us. I don't know. I like the movie. So maybe they were all hoping that you would explain why it's a jollo. Right. Maybe that's what it is. Guys, if you made it this far, hopefully you know the answer to the, to the question. <laughs> why is psych out for murder a jollo? The answer because is, Troy Howard says it is right. Because it's in everybody's list. Um, yeah. Uh, I won't be returning to this very soon, but I do hold it in high regard. I think it was technically executed well. Um, I thought it was wacky and weird enough to watch it again. And I would really like to see it um, be rediscovered uh, by a decent studio that may even be able to give us a better looking copy. Again, I don't know if there's, a reason to release a widescreen version. It doesn't look like the film was missing any visual information from the left and the right side. So, um, but maybe an English soundtrack is available somewhere that just got, you know, lost amongst everything else. So I'd like to see it released in that regard. Um, but yeah, it was good. What about you? Well, if there's any English soundtrack, it's probably just Adrian Lodusa speaking English because everybody else is Italian. Right. So. And everybody else would have been a dubbed in voice. If they did oh, it that way. you mean if they had made a dub? Like if they the actually day. made a soundtrack for, oh, right, right. for, for English speaking audience. And that would, yeah, include... I mean, they go through the trouble of calling it psych out for murder. It must've been released in English speaking countries. Or at least one of right. them. Right. Exactly. And the fact that the main theme is in English. Yeah. You know. Um, okay. Yeah, I had a, a blast with this movie. Um, it reminded me very much of a Spanish film from 1973 called A Bell from Hell. Huh. And the plot and theme are very similar there is a family member well there's a young man in this case who has been sent to a mental hospital and upon his release he seeks revenge against the people that put him there and it gets a little more into the reasoning behind everything and it is a little darker than uh than this it's more of a, a horror film. Okay. Uh, it's not a giallo at all. A, it's Spanish, and B, it's there's there's no mystery. You know what's going on. I mean, you know who's doing it. Right. But uh, it's a very cool film, A Bell from Hell. If if you like this and the story and the type of themes that this one explored, then that would be a good double feature uh, partner for this one. Yeah, if you could if you could stand it for that long. Yeah. Cool. Well, I quickly went through the Jalo score for psych out for murder. It did not do very well. It only got a 44, which, you know, again, if you go back to all the things that we just said about the film and why is it, or why is it not a Jalo 44 makes sense? Um, Because, you know, it hits, some of the signatures um, 
and a couple of other like important things, but a lot of the important stuff it misses out on. And that makes sense for it to be a, a 44, um, for this time period and for how much it's not really like a giallo. Um, but it's just enough to fall into the list because if you look like death laid an egg gets a 40 footprints on the moon gets a 42, um, psych out for murder gets a 44 sweet body of Deborah gets a 50 hyena in a safe gets a 50. Everything I've mentioned so far shows up on people's Jalo lists. Black veil for Lisa gets a 52. Um, and again, you know, obviously the criteria is skewed towards classic Jalo killer is on the loose kind of thing as was kind of made popular by blood and black lace and bird with crystal plumage. But, um, it seems to make sense that this would get a 44 and it would fall among the ranks of other Jolly that kind of are a little ambiguous as to, you know, where they fit in, you know, with the, uh, you know, with, with the history of the film. So, um, yeah, a 44. So, Cool. It's not light. It's not lighting any surveys on fire. But again, I like uh, <clears throat> La Russa. Uh, I'd like to see her in other things. So. Yeah. All right. Anything else? I mean, how could there be anything else? I. If there's <laughs> anything else. <laughs> <clears throat> I don't know how there could be. We 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 we. I think we set a new record this time, ladies and gentlemen. I, yeah. Well, looking at the raw runtime, who knows how much we'll, you'll chop up. But, you know, that was one thing I noticed the last episode was a paltry three hours and what, 13 minutes? Yeah, I tried to get it in under three, but it just didn't happen. Yeah, once okay, you well, add in the uh, introduction yeah. and the song at the end, I put it over. Yeah, but I also noticed that it had a lot of downloads pretty quick. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering if there's <laughs> some kind of correlation there. I think the download popularity has to do with, well, two things. Um, if you are somebody who has said, I want to subscribe to this podcast, then as soon mm-hmm. as it gets released, you get it. Um, well, if you, you have the what, automatic download setting right whether you listen to it or not so i think the people that have the automatic download turned on for our show they get it right away and that's why the downloads go up quickly in the beginning um but the other reason i think is when somebody sees the title of a film that they recognize more likely than not is when they they click on it but i think the majority of it is more people are interested in, in the podcast in general and they've subscribed to it. And so we're seeing that we have more subscribers than before. So cool. If that's true, I would, I would like to, you know, I would implore everybody listening still at this point to get in touch with us and let us know what you think of the podcast. Um, I don't have any correspondence into the email address 
since the last time we put another podcast out. There haven't been any reviews left at Apple Pod, Apple Podcasts. I haven't gotten any messages on the Facebook group or, you know, directly to my um, instant message on Facebook. So we know more people have subscribed. We know more people have joined the Facebook group and more people are listening. Um, but I haven't heard from anybody saying, you know, we like this, we don't. So I assume that everybody's happy uh, with what they're hearing. But uh, yeah. just to let you know, um, if you're not happy or if you are and you want to tell us about it, get in touch. It's jallochowchow at gmail.com. And of course, it's jallochowchow, the Facebook group. Um, you can look it up that way. Um, yeah, but, uh, you know, I think we're puttering along pretty good. We're, 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 we're keeping our, we're, we're keeping our listenership. We're not losing people. We seem to be gaining some people. So that's good. That's good news. Yeah, that is good. On the next episode of the Jalo Chow Chow podcast, we're going to go to the second place favorite, which is um, The Doll of Satan, uh, another movie from the late 60s that falls into the Jalo category. And it's a little bit more jolly than this film that we covered today. I've watched it once already. It's a really good film. It'll be fun to talk about. Cool. Yeah. Just a reminder, once again, uh, Jalo chow chow at gmail.com or the Facebook group. Don't forget to get in contact with Matt, our uh, fearless leader uh, who is on sabbatical indefinitely um, at I hate Matt wall.com. And you want to check out my website. It's the score.com not score like musical score, but score like points, but they're both spelled the same. So it doesn't matter. Um <laughs> <laughs> Um, that's it. Uh, what do you think, uh, Al? Anything else for our listening audience? Uh, nope. <laughs> uh, send well everything you said. Send right. feedback, even if you hate us. Let us know so we can laugh about it. <laughs> and, uh, if there's something that you think would, I don't know, help make the show better, like a kind of segment that you might suggest. Or if you have any questions or ideas for future polls, I guess, for the Facebook group, uh, let us know. Well, if you have any of your own thoughts or interesting ideas about the stuff that we've covered, even ones from, I guess, hell, any of them, yeah. going back almost 100 episodes, most of which <laughs> had nothing to do with me. But uh, let us know. And besides that, uh, summer's here, so stay cool. All right. Well, it's been fun, sir. I appreciate it. And uh, to everybody listening, uh, we appreciate your support and your listening. And um, that's it. The Doll of Satan is up next, everybody. And until then, ciao, ciao. Ciao, ciao.